Hello, and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to synchromysticism, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is your host, Recluse, a.k.a. Stephen Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visit blog and co-author of Strange Tales of the Parapolitical, along with my co-host, Frank Zero. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visupview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W.blogspot.com. And procure a copy of the book at the farm's official store, which is the farmpodcast.store. The farmpodcast is all one word, dot store. All right, now today's show is another installment in our ongoing series chronicling the World Anti-Communist League, or Wackle as it's known in, this, in these parts. And as this is a Wackle show, that means I've got the Wackle Roundtable with me. Most of it anyway today. So first up is my research partner, the great Keith Allen Dennis. Keith, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Recluse. This is all your fault. <laughs> oh, yeah. All right. Also making his third appearance in the Wackle series is Moss Robertson, our Ukrainian specialist. Moss, thank you again so much for dropping by today. It's always great to be back. Yes. We love having you here. All right, and last but not least, we've got the farm's resident ex-cultist, Don Diligent, with us today. Don, as always, a pleasure. It is good to be back once again. All right. Well, guys, let's get to it. All right, so Wackle. During its heyday, Wackle was very much the visible personification of the fascist international It was a motley crew of aging Nazi and fascist war criminals, assorted former intelligence officers, various cultists and secret society initiates, and the inevitable arms and drug traffickers. There were two principal organizations behind Wackel. One was an Eastern European outfit known as the Anti-Bolshevik Bloc of Nations, or ABN, while the other was the Asian People's Anti-Communist League, or APACL. Now, the ABN were our major point of emphasis in the first installment of this series. While Part 2 and some of Part 3 dealt with APACL, Part 3 was mostly centered around the Unification Church, which is a major piece of the Wackle puzzle. Now, we've got most of the players established, so we can finally start telling you about how Wackle came into being. The first effort to create Wackle occurred in 1958, but it was not until 1966 that it actually came into being. Today's show is going to explain the infamous 1958 Mexico City meeting, which you guys have heard us mention throughout this series, and what went on during the eight-year gap between the meeting and the foundation in 1966. Okay, but before we get to all the good stuff, I need to set the stage a bit. Now, one thing you guys have heard us mention throughout this series is something known as the Golden Lily. Allegedly, this was a cache of gold looted by the Japanese and their, at that the Allies recovered at the end of the Second World War. Now, the Golden Lily is often tossed around on conspiracy sites as an established fact, but I need to emphasize, a lot of this is highly speculative. Now, it's commonly believed that the Golden Lily funds were largely unknown until a husband and wife duo, Sterling and Peggy Seagrave, former time correspondents, who first started to write about it during the early knots. However, the great muckraker, Jack Anderson, first addressed looted Japanese gold as far back as 1975. Scott and John Lee Anderson, who were not related to Jack, though one did work for the old muckraker for a time, would go on to write Inside the League, still the only full-length account of Wackle yet published. So, this also establishes a Golden Lily slash Lackle link early in the game. The first person, though, to really get the ball rolling was a painter 
called Mark Lombardi. Now, during the 1980s, Lombardi did a series of paintings, sometimes referred to as interlocks, that illustrated the connections between the Golden Lily Funds and various U.S. covert operations. Now, for his efforts, Lombardi was awarded the Gary Webb Award in 2000, nearly four years before Gary himself got it. Mark Lombardi, very interesting guy with some very compelling sources. Do yourselves a favor, folks, and read up more on this guy. He really knew his stuff. Okay, but back to the Golden Lily. So this is speculative, but it is also informed speculation. As the legend has it, Imperial Japan realized that the war was lost, began making plans for their comeback. The Japanese had been involved in imperial expansion for much of the 20th century up to that point, and they had procured a lot of loot in the process. Many of the precious metals, but especially the gold, were melted down and reforged into golden bars. Uh, a lot of this had originally come from Buddhist statues and the like from Korea and China that were destroyed. I mean, just these priceless artifacts that were lost forever. Okay, the loot was stashed in a series of massive underground vaults that the Japanese army built across the Philippines, and which they expected to keep once the, the Philippines, which they expected to keep once the peace treaties had been signed. Some accounts hold that additional vaults were also built in Japan proper as well. Now, regardless, the Allies found out about the gold, or at least a portion of it. But even a small portion constituted a considerable amount of money. The Americans, in collaboration with the Yakuza, would use these funds to ensure that the Liberal Democratic Party ruled Japan as a practical one-party state for much of the rest of the 20th century. And this was just one activity that these funds were earmarked for. It should be noted, though, that the Golden Lily Funds have been attributed to a host of things over the years. This is because many former intelligence officers appear to have used evidence of this gold for their own confidence schemes involving hidden international bullion markets and the like for decades. Okay, a big guy in this was Robert Booth Nichols, who gained infamy for the Promise scandal and was surely one such confidence scheme running, he was surely running one such confidence scheme with these phony gold certificates. This led the financier Sam Israel to being convicted of fraud in 2008 as a result. So there's a lot of BS concerning these funds, and more than a few lives have been ruined over it. So again, be cautious and be skeptical about everything you hear and read about the Golden Lily. But tentatively, I do believe that compelling circumstantial evidence does exist for its existence. All right, so that was kind of a long, bloated footnote that we nonetheless needed for some of this uh, material to make sense. So now that it's out of the way, let's get into the real heart of the matter here. Okay, so the infamous 1958 Mexico City meeting. Keith, I want you to start off with this as this is your bread and butter. For those of you who are unaware, Mr. Dennis has written a brilliant manuscript on Wackle that's centered around the 1958 meeting and its aftermath. And he will soon be releasing this work, which will be the first full-length account of Wackle published since Inside the League. I mean, it is all really exciting. Okay. So. Keith. What, what do you think? <laughs> what do you yes, think? Sir. Uh, you want to you wanna talk about 58? Sure. Okay. Let's talk about 58. Um, what do you want to know? Okay, so we've got uh, we've already covered a lot of the major players, but one guy stands out that we haven't said much about, and that is Marvin Liebman. Okay, why does he matter to all of this? Well, I will, <clears throat> I will, I'll, I'll say a couple things about that. First, 
Um, yes, I am going to release this book, Corona willing, right? Um, but it's really deals primarily with the early years, uh, their development from, I'm going to say, 1954 with the founding of APACL to 1967 when they had their first inaugural conference so um and that's a period that has escaped real examination in a thorough way by most of the authors um because the wackle story becomes much more interesting and salacious and scandalous the further in time you go into the reagan years and uh you know you think of like death squads and the crack epidemic and you know old nazis and all this kind of stuff and it's kind of exciting in like a dubious way but there's like a whole bureaucratic kind of thing this is like a big ngo a world-spanning non-governmental organization and they actually made policies and had these conferences and these meetings where there's like what are we going to do what, what's going to be our priority area you know so i'm going to write i'm going to publish about the uh mostly about that earlier period um about marvin liebman he's a guy whose uh role in all of this has escaped a lot of attention over the years with and there's one exception to that that i want to point out a guy is uh, dr kyle burke He's a professor, and I can't remember the name of the university now, but he, he put a book out a few years ago called Revolutionaries for the Right. And that book has some of the most ink spilled on Wackle um, since Inside the League came out in 86. Um, so it's, it's a great book. It's highly recommended. But Marvin Liebman was an old China lobby guy. Um, I mean, I talked about this in the China Lobby episode, but there was this uh, this short-lived kind of organization called the World Anti-Communist Congress for Freedom and Liberation. It's kind of a mouthful. And Marvin Liebman was elected to be its secretary general. And he was in charge of the finances, and he was supposed to be kind of one of its ambassadors and, more importantly, fundraisers in the U.S. And it's something that he took pretty seriously, at least until they actually met in Mexico City. Um, but in another sense, it was just going to be another one of his great big portfolio of these paper organizations, which, uh, or letterhead organizations, um, sometimes not occupying much more than a folder or maybe a drawer in a filing cabinet. There, there's your organization. And what I mean by this, if you take, a, let's say like, uh, it'll just, there'll be some name, like, let's say, uh, the international, Committee for the Emergency of Cash Ruling Everything Around Me. And then you got an acronym. In this case, it will be Ice Cream. And then along one side of the letterhead, you got this impressive roster of people that are on the committee. Baskin Robbins, the Good Humor Man, Ben and Jerry, you know. And and so when you uh, send this out saying we need money for this cause or whatever, you you open your mail and you're like, wow, they got Ben and Jerry. You know, where's my checkbook? But uh, it was really about creating the perception that these organizations were big and had this broad support. And as often as possible, Marvin Liebman wanted to have Democrats as well as Republicans on this, on, in as many organizations that he made. So he was an organization man. And this was the guy that started the Committee of One Million 
against the admission of communist China into the United Nations in, I think, 53. So, you know, he worked with Alfred Kohlberg, the China lobby man. He's kind of a mentor uh, to the younger Liebman. So he definitely had the chops. He had the PR experience. He had the fundraising experience. He had the connections with the American uh, appendages of the Taiwan lobby. And so he was an ideal guy, you know, and he was a CIA guy on the soft like PR side of things, which he talks about in his autobiography coming out conservative. So it's not not a controversial to say that, you know, if it ever was, it's not a secret anymore. But um, but the CIA, for some reason, held this uh, conference like at arm's length. And you can see it in the files at Hoover and at uh, I think it's Marquette University in Milwaukee, where I got some papers as well. Um, you had you can see it in these these correspondences with Kohlberg and Liebman and and uh, Walter Judd, Minnesota congressman, the China lobby guy. Um, they're all writing each other back and forth, scratching their heads about how they couldn't wrangle a measly fifteen thousand dollars out of Alan Dulles. But yet at the same time, Liebman, he winds up being tapped by the CIA to keep an eye on this conference ahead of its beginning. And he also says in his autobiography that he was like in this liaison mediator role with the Muslim groups, the Chinese, the Latin Americans. And and he's he's having these meetings about it in NYC with the CIA. So he was going to be kind of like almost like their eyes and ears on the ground there, but then they wouldn't fund it. And that was something that the APACL chief, Kuching Kang, couldn't understand either. Um, the Taiwanese thought that the American government was going to open its wallet for APACL and their World Anti-Communist Congress because the U.S. is like, you know, they're the, they're the heroes, the leaders. They're, they're the, the standard bearers of freedom, and they've just won World War II, and they're rich, and they're powerful, and why won't you open your wallet, right? But um, and, and for that reason, they they really wanted the U.S. to have its own APACL. That's Asian People's Anti-Communist League, by the way. Uh, they wanted us to have our own APACL chapter because it would it would open the door to a lot of that fundraising or so they thought. Um, but the problem with that was. Uh, you know, Vietnam, Korea, China, Taiwan, they all had their own. These were like the three core military governments that formed APACL in 54. And their APACL chapters were literally extensions of their military governments. So if the United States has its own APACL chapter and it's made up of civilians and they're lobbying for this position or that in these APACL conferences, they could find themselves at cross purposes with the U.S. government and its foreign policy. So it's like we, we're not going to have an official U.S. chapter because we we have the State Department and the Pentagon. <laughs> you know, that's who that's who's going to be our foreign policy apparatus, not this thing. If you guys want to do it, that's fine. But anyway, so there was always kind of this tension with APACL trying to get the U.S. into a greater role and really Chiang Kai-shek trying to get us to give him nukes and cover his invasion of the mainland and he just never gave up on it but but anyway so marvin liebman 
is going to be the guy, you know, to, to do all this stuff um, for this Mexico City conference. Um, and, and that becomes, you know, it's, it's really important. It's kind of an overlooked thing. Um, and it's something that he kind of talked about himself in his coming out conservative uh, book where, you know, even the Andersons, which, by the way, uh, they were not brothers. Only one of them is related to Jack Anderson. The other one, I think, Scott, is not. There's no relation. But everybody says they're 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 brothers, but they're they're not. But anyway, yeah. So that's that's Marvin Liebman for you. That's why he's kind of important. He came out talking about that in his book, and Kyle Burke talked about it at some length in his book. But otherwise. Uh, there's not a lot of mention about his connection to all this stuff because it's pretty unlikely. Here is an ex-communist Jewish gay man who successfully stayed in the closet until the 90s. And he's just not the kind of guy you would expect to be having a seat at the table for something like this. But then there he was. And Liebman was also very close uh, to William Buckley, too, who was a guy that we had gotten into in the yeah. uh, last Wackle podcast quite a bit. So, you know, to kind of put this, you know, in perspective, this was sort of the respectable face, if you will, of conservatism in the 1950s, uh, this kind of Ivy League type clique uh, within the Republican Party and so forth. Um, but yeah, that was definitely a great roundup. But um, so we've got Liebman covered. Now there's one other player that we need to kind of get into a little bit. And uh, that was an outfit, or I guess it still technically is an outfit known as the American Security Council or ASC. I think now actually it's the American Security Council Foundation, but uh, whatever. The ASC was in some way akin to the far right version of the Council on Foreign Relations for much of the Cold War. It was described as the soul, if not the very heart, of the military-industrial complex. It was a think tank, but one who got very little money from the financial community. So, not really a banker's uh, vehicle. Virtually all of the ASC's backers were defense companies or staples of the National Association of Manufacturers, which the great Doc Future noted and one, was one of the major sponsors of the far right for many years in the farm past farm podcast episode that he appears upon you guys should check that out because it dovetails very nicely with a lot of the stuff in this series if you have not already mm. but the asc wasn't just a lobby outfit it was also a vast private intelligence network when it was originally founded in 1955 largely with the help of veterans of the america first committee its principal duty was to continue the process of blacklisting it compiled some 4 million dossiers on American citizens during its heyday, which were given to its corporate backers. It also got into a host of other intrigues, not unlike Wackle. With a membership roster largely comprised of former military and intelligence officers, the ASC really laid the foundation for later private networks like the Enterprise. But it operated on a scale during the Cold War that you know, other such cabals just could not match. Along with Wackel and the European-centric Le Cercao, it formed the far-right counterparts to the neoliberal CFR slash Bilderberg slash Trilateral Committee or Commission Access. As such, it's hardly surprising to find the ASC affiliates were present at the founding of Wackel, or at least you would think that they were. Now, Keith, uh, you have an interesting take on this and whether or not there were a uh, strong ASC presence at the Mexico City meeting, right? Yeah. 
and, and you know, when it comes to ASC, I, I consider you to be the expert. You and um, Joel Vanderregen, I think I'm saying that wrong, probably. He, he's got the um, Institute for the Study of Global Politics, ISGP. It's, globaliza- it. it's globalization and convert politics. Globalization and politics. There you go. Um, convert politics. <laughs> great, great big write-up of so many of, of these organizations, including the American Security Council and a bunch of declassified FBI documents on and from the ASC can be can be had there gratis, which is great. But other than that, it's you, Recluse. You're the guy. You've written so much about this this subject, and and if anybody could put a book together on that, those guys, it, it, you're, you're the guy. You could even call it Fringe after your your series. Um, loathing in the American Security Council, but but um, <clears throat> the ASC is something that <clears throat> has been too too much overlooked. I think you know there's there's more than one kind of globalist out there. Is one way to say it. Uh, there's a, a great piece that's on a conspiracy archive website. I think the author's name is Will Banyan, and the article is called. The illusion of elite unity. And it goes into how in the popular conspiracy media and everything, it's all one pyramid. It's one monolithic thing, you know, and all of the struggles that they appear to have is just kayfabe, you know, and it's really just one thing. And that that 70 page article, I think it is. And it's also on Scribd, that Scribd website. You can get it there. Um really make some persuasive arguments against that theory, you know, but the things we always have, we hear about the Yankees, the Milner kindergartens and, you know, the council on foreign relations and all that kind of stuff. Um, these are your liberal progressive internationalists that are in favor of like the league of nations and the UN and the Bretton woods institutions. And, you know, if they had had their way, um, this is like American empire at the apex of its power, allowing itself to be restrained and have its sovereignty constrained by these multilateral international agreements that were supposedly designed to keep World War III at bay. You know, and these are your classic globalists we hear so much about. Um, and then the UN literally allows communist countries membership in it and gives them a voice and sometimes a veto in international affairs. And that makes the UN a crypto communist organization org, you know, on its face as far as the critics were concerned. Right. So these are your Yankees, uh, your Woodrow Wilson's and Kennedy's and Truman's and stuff. But then you have your conservative internationalists like the Teddy Roosevelt's or the Taft's, the Henry Cabot Lodge and the MacArthur's. And, you know, these are the your cowboys, according to Carl Oglesby, again, taking that kind of low resolution but very effective sketch model from his Yankee Cowboy War book. So these guys are globalists, too, in their own way, but with a very different bent, you know, more like hegemonic. So, yeah, the U.S. should be engaged with the rest of the world, but more like on a bilateral or even unilateral way, not mediated and diluted through the U.N., but direct, you know. We come out of World War II on top of the world. Uh, fought two wars across two oceans. I mean, Germany couldn't even get it together. You know, you could walk from the eastern to the western front if you had enough trail mix. You know, we crossed oceans, you know. So, and then we come out as as on top, 
you know we were the winners of world war ii so if you guys ever played uh that board game risk anybody no no not off the top of my head i can recall See, i'm like the nerd in the group here that's fine Nobody plays Axis and Allies. Nobody plays Risk. That's fine. Well, Dude, I play Magic the Gathering practically every week, man. <laughs> All right. You, you got me beat on that one. Um, but uh, when you're playing that game Risk, you know, you cash in your Risk cards at a certain point, right? And you get a bunch of armies. And it's like, what are you going to do with them? You going to sit on them? No, you're going to stomp holes all over the earth with this, with this. you know? You've turned in your Risk card. You got you to gotta do something with it, right? So let me, let me rein it in here, okay? ASC was like the Ur cowboy think tank the nexus of this conservative international standpoint and it started out post-war in a very diminished position because like you said there was these america first pro-fascist business plot types you know they had to lay low during and after world war ii uh for obvious reasons they're you know they they, they these are the americans that lost world war ii in a way so they're kind of in the wilderness, and their positions are not very popular. Um, but they start working their way into the mainstream and into power again in in the 50s. And its membership of the ASC kind of spun out and spun out into many of the more well-known conservative think tanks and pressure groups later on, like the Heritage and the CMP and what have you. But the ASC is like the through line. From the Red Scares and the Red Squads at the end of World War One, the American Vigilante Intelligence Federation, the people that got the protocols published in the U.S., you know, um, your pro-white Russian guys, um, America First, to the China lobby, to the military-industrial complex, and all the way up to the, the Reagan years and beyond. Um, the Reagan years were like the golden age for the ASC and also for Wackel, but really I kind of repeat myself. Because Wackel is like almost as like an arm of the ASC in a, in a way, okay, by by the 80s anyway. So so they're kind of a relic now, but they're very important because the influence they had spread out into so many areas. And uh, if, if I mentioned before that the conspiracy theory entertainment complex is basically an arm of conservative politics, you know, I think that the ASC and its long-term effect on American politics is the very thing that all the pundits out there are trying to get you to ignore, making you focus instead on the Illuminati and how the Federal Reserve controls the weather and all that kind of stuff, you know. Um, but they're they're a very important part of Wackel. So let me get to the actual question after ranting about it. So so Charles Edison, who was like a mentor and a father figure to Charles uh, to Marvin Liebman, he's he's in the ASC in some capacity. Um, but he didn't actually go to Mexico City. But the guy that did was a young Francis J. McNamara, who would have been about 30 in 1958. And this guy checks all the boxes. So there was this private intelligence agency started by ex-FBI agents called American Business Consultants, or ABC, funded by the China lobby man, Alfred Kohlberg, who was also sort of a mentor to Liebman, as I said. And they had this propaganda rag called counterattack, and they went after socialists and communists and also unions, which are communists, right? Anyway, um, it sounds exactly like the ASC starting out as the Midwest Research Library and the blacklisting and all this kind of stuff. Well, Francis McNamara, who was Army Intel in World War II, 
in the China theater, of course. He goes to work for them in 48, at, about a year after the counterattack newsletter started. And he became the editor of it in the early 50s. Went to work for the VFW in their national security division in 54. But by 58, he'd gone to work as a researcher for House on American Activities Committee, WAC. So this he might have. So that's in 58, same year as the um, as the conference. Maybe he was between jobs at that point. Maybe he'd already started with HUAC. I don't know. But that is an American Security Council type presence right there, you know, in in the room. And and, um, that's just like a little kernel by the 80s. It's like I said, it's almost like Wackle is like a division of the foreign uh, policy deep state apparatus for the ASC network. But in the 50s, it's just a little guy or two just to see what it's about. I hope that I hope that helps. A kind of a, a long rant about the ASC there. I think they're oh no no it was great entirely it was great. ignored. And um, I mean definitely taking the history back uh, with the whole concept of conservative internationalism, which really just doesn't get a lot of play. Uh, and I mean within that you know movement, you kind of had to divide too between the sort of uh, followers of TR and then the sort of Ohio slash Taft wing, of course. TR was really effectively the nation's first neocon. Um, a lot of the foreign policy gurus that he had groomed actually ended up in the CFR after the 19 or after 1919 when he died, and they kind of served as the basis of the uh, the Prussian faction in there, as opposed to the traitor faction that was kind of the uh, the liberal internationalist, the uh, financial elites, and that type of thing. And eventually, this group effectively revolted. Uh, you know, you had sort of the conflict with the CFR in 68, where they came to blows. A lot of the uh, Prussians backed out. They started going into stuff like the Committee for the Present Danger, which is where the officially the neocon movement had started with. And uh, the Rockefeller wing kind of went with the Trilateral Commission and that type of thing. And then and which course, one got all written about in the conspiracy literature? Right? <laughs> yeah. The trilateral, trilaterals are coming for your babies or whatever <laughs> yeah and very little about the committee for the present danger and then right. of course uh the taft wing is the glorious quote-unquote isolationist wing which is really the direct uh predecessor to the america first committee and what have you and when they talk about isolationism what they're basically saying and this is really what we've always talked about when we talk about the legacy of the united states and isolationism when we talk about isolationism here folks we're saying we don't want to meddle in europe's you know, BS, basically. But when it comes to meddling in everything to the West of us, oh, that's a totally different story. Manifest Destiny, uh, you know, was never, ever deterred by any notion of isolationism. So the Taft wing, they wanted us to continue focusing on Asia and pushing the westward frontier forward. And this is the same thing that uh, what I like to think of as the fabulous MacArthur boys, the officers that had served under Big Mac during uh, the Second World War in Korea. This was their big obsession, and they were also one of the major linchpins at the ASC. So there was a little bit of convergence by these conservative internationalists. A lot of them were actually, of the TR variety, were actually Democrats at this time. They were sort of the backbone of the wise men in the State Department and that type of thing. But ironically, a lot of these guys had been groomed in the earlier War Department, and they were the ones who drove through um, 
the essentially the funding for the military industrial complex, which dramatically changed the composition of the country and how wealth was distributed, moving everything from the northeast to the south and the west and so forth. And also it basically turned the Pentagon into a kind of Frankenstein's monster that now had the financial resources to say nothing of the expertise to rival the uh, kind of Wall Street elite, if you will. And uh, that's a major issue that we're dealing with right now, I can tell you. <laughs> but anyway, little digression there. So let's get back on topic. All right. Now getting to you, Don, and our last Wackle podcast, you did most of the heavy lifting, as it were, theorizing on, among other things, the connections between the Mooney organization and APACL during the mid to late 1950s. Also, during that podcast, you questioned who might be the key sponsors of these two organizations. Now, one name that came up in that regard over the years is the lifetime OSS CIA agent Ray Klein, who shows up in a lot of stuff, folks. Now, what can you say about him and his alleged connections to APACL and the Moon Organization? And did he possibly have some kind of role in bringing about the Mexico City Conference? Well, um, before I begin my answer, um, I'm reminded of uh, Keith's musings on Ray Klein from the last Wackle podcast. So I hope to expand on what Keith offered while also providing a different perspective or two on this whole topic of the early years of APACL and the Moon Organization. So uh, to begin my answer here, um, I just want to, you know, mention my journey into research on Ray Klein, you know, about six years ago when I became a official former Mooney, I basically became obsessed, you know, trying to find out the real history on Moon. It was almost a daily diet, seeing what I could find out on this guy, Moon's organizations, etc. And then about six months, I would say, into my research, I found out about Sun Myung Moon's connection to the World Anti-Communist League, which then le led me to the Asian People's Anti-Communist League. <clears throat> and when I found out that APACL was established at almost the exact same time that the official beginning of Moon's organization was established, then that really got me thinking, you know, was this a coincidence or not? <clears throat> Were these two organizations linked together somehow, <clears throat> excuse me, from the very beginning? It really got me to wondering. And then after that, it didn't take me long before I found Ray Klein in my research. So, I mean, just by Googling a combination of the words Wackle, APACL, Sun Myung Moon, Unification Church, you're going to find that Ray Klein's name comes up pretty easily. So then after I discovered that, I started to find out what Ray Klein was all about. And as you guys know, he's got quite the history to him. <clears throat> I mean, just to summarize a little bit, he first made a name for himself in the OSS during World War II. And as I recall, he worked mostly in Kunming, China, where the Chinese OSS had its headquarters. Klein was also considered to be one of these infamous China cowboys. This was a, a tough bunch, as the name implies, of uh, agents that performed some of the most uh, difficult 
uh, ops, shall we say, in the Chinese theater. By the way, just thinking right now, that, that word cowboy could also have some inference based upon what Keith was just talking about in terms of the Yankee cowboy uh, dynamic. You know, that just came to me now, but I'm not really sure if that would be a connection or not. But anyway, part of that group, you know, you had people like Paul Helliwell, Mitchell Warbell III, E. Howard Hunt, Richard Helms, and John Siglob uh, as well. And years later, Siglob would go on to become the head of Wackle during the Reagan presidency. <clears throat> now, looking further at Ray Klein's resume, after World War II, he became top brass with the CIA branch in Korea. And Siglob was stationed there as well, actually. And, you know, <clears throat> when I think about that, <clears throat> excuse me, those two guys being in Korea around the time of the Korean War, it just makes me wonder if either of them might have had some knowledge, albeit, you know, minimal, of Sun Myung Moon, because Moon did work for the U.S. military during the Korean War. As, as the story goes, uh, Moon was working as a spy in North Korea and was captured and then later escaped to South Korea, where he then hooked up with the U.S. Army in the southernmost major city of South Korea called Busan. But what he was doing with the U.S. Army, and for how long exactly, those are still big questions that need to be answered. But I can tell you this, there's little doubt in my mind based on a couple of things that Moon has said himself, that he was some kind of soldier or guerrilla. Moon has said that himself. And you know, when I think about these obscure quotes from Moon, who I used to think was the second coming of Jesus, I guess you could say it's these kinds of quotes that have made me the researcher that I am today, quote unquote, but enough with that digression. So getting back to Ray Klein here, after Korea, Ray Klein had a stint with the CIA branch in Great Britain, and then later he worked in the States at the CIA desk that was monitoring the Soviet Union and Red China. And then, now we're in 1957, Klein gets assigned to Taiwan, where he ran the CIA there until 62. And it's that five-year period that researchers love to point to when assessing Klein's influence or connection to APACL. There is even some research out there that states that the founding of APACL was mainly because of Ray Klein. And then, of course, there are these articles that suggest that Klein has this early connection to Moon because of his time in Korea and his time in Free China, which then links Klein over to APACL and its founding in 1954. Some of these researchers will have this line of thinking. Now, touching on something you brought up in your introduction, Recluse, another factor with Ray Klein, which sometimes gets bandied about, is that the source of funding, the funding that he allegedly provided APACL, that that funding might have come from the infamous Golden Lily Gold. And 
there's certainly every reason to believe that Klein is one of these OSS China cowboys would have had some intelligence on where that gold was stashed or hiding. Uh, in fact, Sterling and Peggy, Peggy Seagrave in their book, Gold Warriors, said that Ray Klein was involved with Edward Lansdale, who in turn knew all the juicy details about the Golden Lily. That's because he was with MacArthur when MacArthur was given a tour of these uh, caves, we'll call them in the Philippines, where all these you know, various stashes of gold were. Okay. Uh, moreover, Lansdale was connected to Robert B. Anderson, who I covered in our last podcast uh, somewhat. Anderson, who actually he headed a Mooney front called the Global Economic Action Institute. He was responsible for opening up 176 bank accounts worldwide for all of this gold to be distributed, quote unquote. And then uh, decades later, it is said that Ray Klein and Siglob, you know, who's once again, uh, these are the cowboys, right? That Klein and Siglob planned together. Uh, I think I understand it that way, that Siglob was to go back to the Philippines to retrieve more of this gold. By that time, Klein had or was working with Sun Myung Moon's media network. He was part of Moon's academia research or, or outreach, I should say, as well, particularly with university professors. And speaking of professors, Lev Dobriansky, who was at Georgetown University, Ray Klein was at Georgetown as well, working as the director at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS. And CSIS had been founded by Admiral Arleigh Burke, and Burke had been the first head or chairman of the Mooney's first fund group in the U.S., Bohepox KCFF. So you can see there's a lot for us to think about here, okay? That's the Korean Cultural Freedom Foundation, right? Uh, right, exactly. Having said all that, though, other than Seagrave's book, independent researchers don't seem to go the extra mile when doing their APACL research on Ray Klein. They aren't citing source material very much, if at all. They aren't flying or driving the special collections. Thank you, Keith. Mm -hmm. Collections that are housed at these universities or institutes, and they very rarely cite FOIA request documents, and they don't even cite the easy stuff like online collections or whatever. I, I mean, this is kind of a problem here. Now, is Ray Klein a major player here as it pertains to the beginnings of APACL or the Moon Organization? And did Klein have a role in bringing about the Mexico City Preparatory Conference for you know the establishment of WACL? Well, Given Seagrave's book and Ray Klein's OSS history in China and given his, you know, uh, free China and given free China's central role in creating APACL. And if we consider Ray Klein's almost certain connections with the China lobby, it, I mean, it would be hard not to place Klein somewhere towards the center of this mix. 
But at the end of the day, it's still just one big definite maybe as I see it. You know, I, I think where the real lack of scholarship comes in, I mean, when it comes to linking Ray Klein to the very beginnings of APACL and or Moon, I think is simply this. I, I think we need to clearly understand what the purpose of APACL was right there in Korea in 54 with the help of Free China. And what was the prime agenda from the start? What were the goals? You know, and, and that allows me to review something from our last podcast. I theorized in our last talk that both the Moonies and APACL would have wanted to educate the young Korean people in the school systems with a very well thought out anti-communist curriculum. They would want to educate all levels of primary schooling all the way up to the university level. Uh, Moon and APACL wanted to create strong anti-communists is basically the point here, starting when people would be the most impressionable, right? Right. And that's exactly what Moon's front group did, as I explained in the last podcast, and what the Moon organization would continue to do for, you know, years to come. Now, another thing I theorized was that APACL used Moon's front group as their own secret front front. Uh, per se. That's a pretty logical thing to think here because in the bylaws of APACL, it states that the creation of anti-communist youth organizations and women's organizations needs to be done. Moreover, APACL wanted to infiltrate every facet of society with anti-communist education. Sigmund Rhee was president at that time and he was determined to make APACL all-encompassing as an anti-communist educational tool, okay? So what I'm kind of getting at here is it definitely seems that Rhee was condoning and maybe even authorizing Moon's group to bring this anti-communist curriculum into a number of these Korean schools. And that almost suggests that Rhee could have been providing financial aid to Moon. Now, it just so happens, thanks to Keith, because Keith has sent me some of his zip files as it pertains to his own research and his his paper, you know, his manuscript. I kind of got lucky recently doing that because I stumbled across something that supports my theory here. What I have in front of me is a quote from a guy who was a trusted advisor to Neil Salonen. Remember now, for those who have not listened to some of these other podcasts, Salonen is the top anti-communist crusader for the Moonies in the U.S. So the guy, the and, guys and is on the board and is on the board of the very first U.S. Wackle chapter, the American Council for World Freedom. Uh, right. Right. Yeah. Sorry. Very no, important no. there. Please no, that continue. is. No, no. Yeah. Interject at any time. OK, so the quote I have in front of me, then this this top advisor to Neil Salone, and his name is David Martin. And David Martin, uh, he attended a couple of these APACL conferences as an observer. So here's what he said about APACL in a letter to Thomas Lane, who was the chairman at the time for the American chapter of WACL. Here's the quote. APACL was an organization funded primarily 
by several Far Eastern anti-communist governments whose financial support more or less gave them the power to designate the officers and control the direction of the organization. I have, meaning David Martin, I have never quarreled with the structure of APACL. In fact, as assistant to Senator Dodd, that would be Thomas Dodd, I, who was a part of the American Security Council, parenthetically, so let me go back. In fact, as an assistant to Senator Thomas Dodd, I participated in two of its conferences because I took it for granted that this is the way things had to be in Asia, end quote. So then, if Martin's statement is correct, you know, and if it's referring to the very beginnings of APACL, well, there you have it. APACL was primarily funded by these Asian governments. And that spells Sigmund Rhee in Korea's case. But I still think Western intelligence is involved somehow. I mean, I don't think we can get around that thinking, given all the scholarship, so-called scholarship that's already out there. And some yeah. of the fine. Go ahead, Keith. You want to say well, something? You, like the Asia Foundation, which later turned out to be a CIA front that uh, David Rao worked for. Um, and then they had these discretionary funds that can be, <clears throat> you know, spent on this or that. I think they call them counterpart funds. And they speculated that maybe the CIA counterpart funds had been used to help set up APACL. Right. Know. But it, like you said, it's it's not been conclusively proven. You know, you're not going to find a check stub, but come on. You know, the KCIA named themselves the KCIA for a reason. <laughs> and it kind of yeah. rankled some people, right? They're like, oh, my God, that's a little too on the nose, guys. Can you just call it something else? But like, no, okay, it's like CIA, but with a K. So, yeah, yeah, there's a lot of remaking in our own image happening over there. So why wouldn't that extend to something like APAC, right? Right. And by the way, um, d just to support what you're just saying and, and adding on, you know, the Asia Foundation, which was firstly called uh, Committee for a Free Asia, right. they were working very closely with what I'm going to call the Rockefeller CIA during the that liberal, time, which, went, well, the Rockefeller Foundation would be the how can I say the um, the arm, the so-called academic arm of the Rockefeller CIA? So <clears throat> there, <clears throat> excuse me, there was a lot of collaborating going on between those officials for the Asia Foundation and the Rockefeller CIA, you know, um, to support this overall uh, topic that we're you know discussing here, right? So anyway, getting back uh, to the, the next part of my answer here is that uh, I, I found some things in the Woodrow Wilson archive and the ABN newsletter that, were qu that are quite significant, I feel, 
uh, in terms of us trying to get a, a broader perspective of where funding and influence is coming in here. I, I caught a break when I came across the names of William A. Glenn and John M. Prentice. In the ABN newsletter, David Martin, there's our, there's our Mooney advisor again, uh, who's the assistant to American Security Council, Thomas Dodd. So anyway, it says in the ABN newsletter, David Martin um, and Glenn were observers at the 1961 APACL conference. And in the Wilson archive, archives, I found both Glenn and Prentice uh, together. Uh, it, seem, it seems that uh, both these guys um, were observers to many of the APACL meetings in those early years uh, in Korea, like as a part of the Korean chapter, in other words. Mm -hmm. um, but they would also apparently travel, either one or both of them would travel to APACL conferences, you know, when, you know, uh, how can I say, all member nations were gathering together somewhere. Uh, now, of course, that's going to include Taiwan, right? Where and and by this time, or by '57 anyway, Ray Klein is already there, right? Uh, and then, of course, you have George Peck, who, for those who listen to the other podcast, you know, you heard me, you know, theorize about George Peck and his his role uh, during all this. Uh, as a part of all this, excuse me, uh, he was the vice chairman of Korea's uh, APACL chapter, and he ends up representing Korea in the Mexico City Conference. And, yes, and that's that's P A I K. Correct. For anybody out there, right? Correct. Correct. P A P A I K. Right. Right. And William Glenn, he was in attendance also at at the Mexico City Conference. Okay. So then, you know, we have to ask some questions here. Okay, what was Peck's relationship like with Glenn? Okay, since they were at that Mexico City conference and had a whole relationship leading up to that conference. And also, what would the relationship have been with Prentice, meaning Peck's relationship with Prentice? And maybe more importantly, I mean, what were the relationships with these guys with Sigmund Rhee? And I guess the $64,000 question is, who directed William Glenn and John Prentice to be observers in the first place to the Korean chapter of APACL? And then who, if anyone, were the Western observers for the Taiwan chapter of APACL? Because I haven't found anything about that. I don't know about you, Keith. Do you know about any Western observers at at any of these uh, APACL uh, conferences in in Taiwan? Well, I can say David Rao in the in the '60s would brag about you know he was uh, right. trying to we're trying to show his chops about why he knows better than anyone about the pitfalls of going fully global world anti-communist league and trying to advise them not to do so. He would, he would often remind people that he'd been to more APACL conferences than any other American. Right. So, right. Um, so, so there's that, one I can point to, right. but well, then it's that, a big drop off after that. Right. So. And then that would be, that would bring up then the next logical question as an observer 
to the Taiwan chapter of APACL, meaning Rao, right? Who's right, got right. who has his who has his moon connections later on, big time, right? Mm. What relationship does he have possibly with this William Glenn character and or John Prentice? And the answer for me is I don't know. <laughs> and the, uh, well, right, the stuff well, never right. ends. You can just keep digging and digging forever. And right, 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 exactly. I mean, we got a lot of questions here, you know. So as I as I think more about this, I mean, it really does bother me that no one out there in the independent research field has really tried to wrap their brains around either William Glenn and or John Prentice. And, you know, I just tried a simple search on these guys, and I came up with some pretty decent stuff. I think you guys are going to like this. So in the case of Glenn, he got a degree at the University of Southern California's School of Journalism and then went to work in Korea as a press advisor or press liaison officer to Sigmund Rhee's government. And that would have put him squarely within the orbit of Rhee's kitchen cabinet, which I talked about at, at great length in our last podcast and the significance of these American educated supporters of Rhee from very, very early on and, and the significance that they had in all of these foreign uh, relation um, things that would end up having to take place, et cetera. So anyway, uh, and then as far as John Prentice is concerned, he was an Australian national who had a pretty extensive career in Australia's military intelligence. Now that, now before I, before I mention the next thing, now that, that strikes a chord for me because, because Stetsko he had he I'm just going to say it, Yaroslav Stetsko, he had a, an obsession with visiting Australia. OK. I mean, I, Moss, Moss knows all about this. OK, he, he wanted to visit Australia any any chance he, he could get. I mean, that <laughs> that was that was a regular stop for him. OK, he's got so, people out there. I'm sorry. Go he's ahead, got, he, he had people out there. Yes, okay, yes, he yeah. did. Yes, he did. Yeah. So when I hear that John Prentice has this extensive military career with Australia, then my Yaroslav Stetsko sirens like went off. OK. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> so he also lived in the States for some time. But but here's where it gets really good. You're going to love that. You're going to love this recluse. He was he was majorly involved in the study of astrology and the occult, and would eventually become an avid follower. Uh, excuse me, avid follower of Madame Blavatsky, the famous theosophist. In fact, Prentice went on to open a Blavatsky school of theosophy in Australia. Seriously, wow. Ser seriously, okay. So he was definitely into some deep esoteric stuff here. So who knows what that might mean? Okay, I mean, I mean, if we're just going to open this up, okay, say if Stetsko is it right in the middle of this, 
And then we know that Stetsko has a relationship with Boney Fuller. Okay. And we know. <laughs> and these guys were All still right. in contact until like what, 59 or 60 or something like that? Yeah, we were just talking about that a couple of days ago. I mean, I didn't even realize Fuller was still alive by then, actually, but it seems like he was still in contact to Stetsko at least up to a couple of years before his death in 66, I think, ironically. You know, I don't think we've gotten into Fuller. No, we haven't, but I, I can tell you if uh, there's a book that is considered one of the Salima Crowleyite holy books, and it's called The Treasure House of Images, I think. Lieber something, something, who cares? Uh, and it's these, these series of like these sorceress invocations, right? And they all go with a different astrological sign or planet or whatever. And this is a Thelema Holy book, and it was written by J.F.C. Fuller, which is amazing. I mean, it's just amazing to think about that. This guy was a, a one of the architects of modern armor, you know, tank warfare. Tank warfare, yeah, mechanized. And he warfare. had these nine principles or something. I can't remember. Somebody out there, maybe you can. I can bat the ball to you, but it's been speculated that his kind of nine principles or something that he had come up with during his occult career um, became the inspiration for the order of the nine angles <clears throat> that's speculation i'm not totally sure about that but um I've, I've i've read that it's that's been suggested but yeah having stets go in contact with a bunch of occulty type people is pretty weird right well, not entirely unsurprising, though, considering some of the guys these people were in contact right. with. I mean, you had, like, the Romanian Iron Guard, where, I mean, nominally they were supposed to be this hardline Orthodox Christian outfit. But, um, you know, I mean, they were in contact with, uh, was it Mircea Iliad or something? The famed right, mythologist right. and uh, Julius Evoli and all of these other people. Um, and then, of course, later, uh, the group that's actually going to be the point of discussion in our next uh, episode in this series, uh, Los Tecos. They were another weird outfit, too. So, um, but yeah, folks, we're going to really go into these cults and secret societies in the next one. So stay tuned on that. Uh, but back to you, Don. Well, I mean, basically, with with uh, throwing this whole esoteric occult, uh, what I'm going to call potential Mark Lombardi uh, drawing here in terms of connecting this person to that person to that person, uh, so forth and so on. I just want to end my answer and just saying that Ray Klein is is not is not the only character here that we that we should be looking at uh, far from it. And I guess that's how I want to end my answer here. I hope. Right. Yeah. Well, go ahead. No, I, I get. Yeah. I mean, I'm just saying there there's a lot there's a lot to be looked at. I mean, why why aren't people looking at this John Prentice character? Okay, why aren't they looking at this? William Glenn character. Like, why aren't they trying to figure out what's going on? So, so anyway, I, well, I guess one thing I learned from all of this is like, if you want it done, you got to do it yourself. Cause you, if you're waiting around for somebody else to do it, you may be waiting a long time, <laughs> yes, yes. but a lot of this is ancient history. And some of these names are pretty obscure, even to ourselves who, you know, imagine ourselves to be looking deeply into these subjects. So the rest of the world can be forgiven for never having heard of some of them, but you know, that's, that's why they're listening to this podcast so they can find out. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. Right. That's what they got you for Don. <laughs> right. So anyway, that ends, that ends my answer, I guess. 
All right. Now, there's been a lot of dispute as to whether or not uh, the Japanese at the Mexico City Conference had a presence or how much of an influence in the proceedings they had. So what have you turned up in that uh, regard, Don? Well, well, I guess to start my answer, uh, I mean, I want to go back to the Moral Rearmament podcast for a second, uh, where I emphasized just how much Sigmund Rhee just thoroughly hated the Japanese. Uh, of all the major players or countries that helped bring that 1958 conference about, it was Rhee uh, that I'm almost positive would have made sure that Japan's influence on that conference would have been kept to a bare minimum. Sigmund Rhee did not want Japan to be a major player or a player at all, really in the development of a world anti-communist league. You know, just digressing for a moment, I mean, talking about shoddy journalism, I just want to say that it's really a shame that Japan gets, uh, gets all the credit for what they were able to accomplish throughout the 1950s. Um, now, yes, there are three major war criminals, Yoshio Kodama, Ryoichi Sasakawa, Nobusuke Kishe, all three of these guys, yes, they were all let off the hook for their war crimes. Okay, we can thank General, General MacArthur for that. And did these three guys eventually play a major role in the early development of Moon's operation in Japan? Well, they sure did. But when independent researchers start falsifying the timeline for when Japan starts to make substantial progress in the advancement of worldwide anti-communism, that gets under my skin a bit. We need to get it right. Sigmund Rhee remained a major factor in blocking Japan's influence in advancing this anti-communist Cold War agenda, and it essentially remained that way all the way up to Rhee's ouster, which took place in 1960. And it was then and only then that Japan finally had a clear path, quote unquote, to make their mark in this Cold War agenda. Okay, so now in all fairness, there was at least one Japanese representative at Mexico City. I know that to be the case because in the Ukrainian weekly, which Moss knows very well about. It's been kind of my Bible here in the past month or so. You know, it's it's a uh, a weekly periodical put out by you know Ukrainian Americans. So anyway, it was stated in one of their issues that Japan was definitely represented represented at that conference. Uh, but that's not really saying much, since there were 65 nations that had representatives there. So what I'm trying to say is that, you know, you know, Sigmund Rhee, you know, he had this fixed attitude about Japan. And and, you know, just because Japan has this one representative there doesn't mean that they would have had much of any influence at all on what took place there. I mean, that's how I'm I'm basically seeing this. OK, so I guess, you know, to kind of round up my answer to that, um, I think it's worth noting that even though Japan was not a real factor during that conference, 
there are still some significant things going on in Japan at that time that show that they're moving in the right direction. For example, in the case of Yoshio Kadama, by 1958, we know from FOIA documents that he's officially working in some capacity for the CIA, which kind of speaks for itself. And in the case of uh, Nobusuka Kishe, in the late 50s, it's hard to know exactly when. Uh, Keith may know. Uh, I'm not sure. But Kishi personally became the steward or owner of what's called the Mark Marquat Fund, uh, nicknamed the M Fund, which was part of the Golden Lily loot we've been talking about. So because of these things I'm mentioning now, we do have indicators that once Sigmund Rhee was gone from his position in Korea, Japan, which, hap which happened in 1960, uh, where Sigmund Rhee gets ousted, in other words, uh, from that point on, Japan has a has a clear path, uh, basically. So uh, I guess that. Yeah. Go ahead. Maybe that's why Recluse is bringing up Golden Lily at the beginning of this, right? Because it somehow plays some kind of role. But from the understanding, you correct me if I'm wrong, is Vice President Nixon is passing control of the M Fund to Japan, and the idea is it's gonna they're gonna help him take the White House, right? Well, that was supposed to be I, I the wanna, trade. I want to correct you slightly there, Keith. Okay. Nixon turned that money over to Kishi himself. Jeez. Not right. not on behalf of the Liberal Democratic Party. That that I think that's significant. In other words, I believe the timeline on this, and I you know I I stand to be corrected, possibly, but. I believe that he becomes the steward of that money after he is asked, or I think he volunteer, voluntarily did this, when Kishi stepped down from the prime minister position in 1960. I, right. think, I think it might have been possibly right after that where, where Nixon, before the end of his vice presidency, is when that money gets turned over to Kishi personally. I know that to be the case because Dave Emery on his, uh, I'm sorry, on his radio broadcast, he talked about that in great detail, that that money became Kishi's money, not the LDP's money. Gotcha. But the takeaway is, you know, they lose control or they give up control of the M fund. And then uh, Nixon still loses. And, but not before edging out <clears throat> Barry Goldwater, who the young conservative movement really, really wanted. And then he loses anyway, and we get Kennedy. So good job, Nixon, right? Yeah, yeah, right. right. <laughs> yeah, you've got to, you've got to believe that in Nixon's mind, he thinks he's get he's winning the presidency, right? And, and that that whole transfer of the M fund over to Kishi is based upon Nixon becoming president in 1960. Yeah, we, we have to believe that that's the case. Yeah. But but plans changed, but the money still went over. The gold still trans. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so uh, I guess that covers that, uh, Recluse. 
All right. Well, before wrapping up here with this uh, whole time frame around the 58 Mexico City meeting, uh, Moss, why don't you uh, tell us what the ABN was up to and all while all this was going on? Yeah. Well, first off, um, I'm very indebted to uh, Keith's uh, manuscript um, when it comes to the ABN's role in this 58 Congress. So Keith and Don too, you know, feel free to to jump in. Um, they, I mean, as Keith kind of puts it in his thesis, I mean, I think the takeaway is that the ABN kind of overplayed its hand and, um, you know, it was, I think as Keith writes, too aggressive and uh, the American backers, you know, end up backing out. And there's this great anecdote that's from, uh, that Keith includes from uh, Liebman's memoir, Coming Out Conservative where after he pulls out from the conference that he starts getting these calls from what he presumes are Stetsko's people, at which point I guess it kind of dawns on him that, you know, his mother's family, um, which is Ukrainian and Jewish, that Stetsko's people uh, very conceivably, you know, had something to do uh, with their deaths during the Holocaust. And so that he's getting these calls in the middle of the night from Stetsko's people, um, you know, saying you will die, Jew Bolshevik, uh, death to the Jew Bolshevik. And you have sabotaged the anti-communist cause. Yeah. Yeah. And yet, for whatever reason, he sticks around um, with the World Anti-Communist League. Um, to back things up, just about, let's see, I think about 10 days before the Congress. Um, you know, I kind of referenced this before in the towards the end of the episode, the show we did about the anti-Bolshevik bloc of nations or ABN. And I think also touched on it in the um, captive nation segment of the China lobby episode. But throughout the 50s, um, Stetsko was trying to get to the United States and he couldn't. Um, there is kind of like rumor that he may have actually successfully or not, but at least tried to illegally get into the United States at one point from Canada. Um, but the the State Department and the CIA, for um, a number of reasons, were opposed to Stetsko or other leaders of the OUNB, or that's the, you know, the faction of the organization of Ukrainian nationalists led by Stepan Bandera, who gets assassinated um, in 1959. And so, you know, just a matter of days before the Congress, um, it's unclear who is writing to who, but in the CIA, there is, or in the CIA files, there's a memo about how saying the Banderites or they're calling them the Banderists, saying the Banderists are extremely angry at the moment because Stetsko, um, at the very last moment, his visa to the United States was denied yet again. And that is on March 5th. And so the Congress in Mexico City starts 15 days later. And then at about the same amount of time after the Congress, there is all of a sudden a reversal and Stetsko's gotten his visa. And the CIA um, intercepted um, a letter from Dobriansky in the United States to Stetsko in Munich on March 10th, so 10 days before the Congress, in which 
um, you know, they learn that Dobryansky is lobbying his congressional allies to help get Stetsko his visa, which evidently is a success in the end. And so when Stetsko, um, you know, about, let's see, two months after the Congress finally makes it to the United States, he testifies before the House Un-American Activities Committee and I believe another congressional committee, maybe the Foreign Affairs Committee. But um, the guy, one of the the Americans in the uh, steering committee, and Keith, maybe you could add a little bit about him, but Francis J. Uh, McNamara, Mm-hmm. Um, he was, I think, Keith, you say in your thesis that he was a, a staff director for HUAC. Um, uh, later on, yeah, he, he, he just got bigger and bigger in that role, but he started out in 58 as a research kind of consultant or assistant. Okay, but so he was connected to the committee at that time, you're saying? That year, yes. That exact time, I'm not sure. Okay, so I mean, I think it's, it's a little speculative, speculative but it seems... Um, very reasonable speculation to me that 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 is largely the key to this reversal is that Stets go throughout the 50s, can't get to the United States. Then he goes to this Congress and there is a connection to the House on American Activities Committee. And Stets go gets to go to the United States from Mexico, um, which is, you know, kind of ironic that he was trying to get into the United States illegally from Canada, and in the end, he finally gets to the United States legally from Mexico. Um, Over the wall. Yeah, and he uh, goes to the House on American Activities Committee. So I think that's a key thing. Um, And then also Dobryansky, of course. Um, But also, as Keith mentions um, in the thesis, is that the Ukraine Weekly um, is wrong when it it says that. Oh, Dobryansky... by the way, Moss, Moss, it's it's a manuscript, man, not a thesis. Okay. Okay. Well, but <laughs> it's fine, man. It's it's all good. But the the Ukraine Weekly can resist. incorrectly, uh, you know, a little bell went off in my head when I said that. But but uh, but Keith does whatever you want to call it. Keith dispels the notion that Dobryansky actually attended the conference um instead uh well there was a significant there was a very significant delegation of abn members and then of that um which would be no surprise to those who listened to the abn episode there's a there's a within that a relatively large contingent of that delegation are ukrainians and they're coming from the united states from munich from canada um there's one guy i believe from argentina yeah. And um, joining the oh well so in in Dobryansky's instead of Dobryansky uh, there's this guy um, who I know Don is going to want to get into Walter Dushnik who um, is there instead and um, before getting into him I just would like to note that also joining the steering committee of the Congress in Mexico City is another ABN character um, we discussed in the first show, um, Ferenc Farkas, who is, um, listeners may recall, he's the Hungarian guy who, when Stetsko was trying to get to the United States in 1952 um, and fails, uh, Farkas is the one who slips through. And um, and like Stetsko, he was a um, known to be a, 
an alleged uh, war criminal and um, Nazi collaborator. And so I think Dushnik, um, Don's really kind of helped open my eyes to um, the important importance of Dishnik. Um And before turning it over to him, I think I'll just say, um, you know, in the also in the episode about the ABN, the OUNB, um, I discussed um, in 1939, there was testimony to the House on American Activities Committee um, about the organization of Ukrainian nationalists and its network in the United States and um, its orientation towards the Nazis. And the guy who testified, um, he, you know, he, uh, there was a, numerous pieces of evidence, but some of the main thing, uh, pieces of evidence that he presented was um, the, was referring to these, referring to the OUN literature in the United States. And Walter Dushnik was um, like the key person, the editor-in-chief of these publications, and a major contributor to them. And so, to some extent, you know, that that was built around Dushnik's words. And um, Dushnik's uh, obituary, um, I believe, in the Ukrainian Review, which is a publication of the Ukrainian Congress Committee of America, references him as a member of the OUN. It doesn't specify when he joined or what faction um, he was a part of. But in the CIA documents, there is a kind of interesting story laid out of Dobriansky and Dushnik. They're both part of this mission to um, that's organized, or this delegation of Ukrainian-American leaders, I believe of maybe three to four people and two of them are Dobriansky and Dushnik, and um, yeah, there were four, there were four for okay, that yeah. that trip. Yeah, and was it? I think it was the end of 1951. It was it was right at, it was right after Eisenhower was the president elect. Okay. In at the end of 52. So their mission is largely to try to um, smooth out these divisions. Um, within the Ukrainian um, emigre community in Western Europe, but also between Ukrainians and um, and Russian groups and others who are, the CIA is trying to bring together um, to, for what's the, you know, it had various names, but I'll just refer to it as the, you know, the American Committee for the Liberation, what is it, of the peoples from Bolshevism. I, I always get mixed up on it, but it's the, Amcom lib. Yeah, that. <laughs> we'll just go with that. <laughs> yeah, Amcom lib. That is the um, the nexus for um, uh, creating um, Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty, and um, the someone else who gets hooked up. Well, actually, that was organized. That trip was organized by the Psychological Strategic Strategy Board. Um, yeah which a prominent person in that was this guy, Edward M. O'Connor, who um, Christopher Simpson and others credit him as being the single most important American um, activist or ally of the anti-Bolshevik bloc of nations. And he was one of the members of the Displaced Persons Commission, and he's actually the guy who helped rewrite the rules to allow um, Baltic Nazi collaborators into the United States. And um, 
And he also, ironically enough, his son ends up becoming the lawyer for John Demyanyuk in the 70s and 80s, who is um, who was accused of being um, Ivan the Terrible, this like notoriously sadistic and ruthless concentration camp guard at Treblinka. But he turned out to be a different Ivan at another um, Nazi death camp, uh, Sobobor. But anyways, that's a little bit of a long-winded tangent. But Edward M. O'Connor and Dobriansky and presumably Dushnik as well, after the failure of this mission, are both feel basically like stabbed in the back um, by the U.S. government and um, kind of tacitly or directly like kind of join forces with these McCarthyites um, in Congress who are campaigning against the Voice of America as part of this whole loss of China thing, which ties into, you know, our last episode about the China lobby. Um, And so the CIA is interested in Dushnik. They're not interested in Dobriansky. Um, At the time, Dushnik tells the CIA that Dobriansky, who is the new president, relatively new president of the Ukrainian Congress Committee of America at the time, I think he becomes president in 1949, and he'll stay in that role um, through the 80s when he joins the Reagan administration as a ambassador to the Bahamas. And just one little quick aside about that is I, I was once in, I was at the National Archives in D.C. Um, several years ago when I was first kind of getting interested in this stuff and um I was trying to make sense of the fact, like, why is this Ukrainian-American guy, you know, why is he given ambassador to the Bahamas? And um, there's some stuff out there, which maybe we'll get into future episodes about him and drug trafficking, perhaps. But um, big transshipment area for drug traffic. Yeah. Yeah. But the um, the guy I was asking at the National Archives, it's funny, he turns to me and he's like, uh, he's like, well, it's a payoff, of course, you know. Uh, which kind of makes sense because, you know, Dobriansky in the 80s, you see photos of him. He's he's very tan. Um, you know, he's probably spending much of his time out on the beach. Um, but so Dobriansky essentially, I think this, this trip in 1952, which is a failure, um, plays, well, actually during that trip, Dobriansky and Dushnik meet Bandera, probably for the first time and perhaps for the last time but i think that's the beginning of where these two will end up becoming oriented eventually towards the OUNB but at the time Dushnik actually tells the CIA that Dobriansky is someone who he thinks doesn't even read who is basically not even interested in these sort of pe- petty intra nationalist community conflicts and Dushnik is actually I don't have it in front of me, and I kind of can't remember exactly how he says it. But Dishnik is suggesting, I mean, his language suggests that he is not a Bandera supporter at the time. Um, over the course of, I think this 1958 Congress is kind of um, more or less the middle point between their evolution of becoming fully in the OUNB camp, because um, I don't remember if we got into it before, um, but the CIA didn't support the OUNB, but this other faction that broke with the OUNB in 1948. And so Dobriansky will eventually get, you know, 
rather viciously opposed to that group, as well as Dushnik. Um, but Dushnik is someone who the CIA was interested in. And um, when, you know, he's actually, it turns out, was friends in 1958, was friends with um, one of these chiefs within the Soviet division of the CIA. And uh, when Stetsko makes it to D.C. Um, in the days after he testifies to the House on American Activities Committee, um, Dushnik calls up this guy who's his friend at the CIA and says, can we, you know, organize a meeting um, between you and Stetsko? And they're actually interested at this point. But, you know, they pass him off. They say, well, actually, there's someone at the Pentagon who would be interested in speaking to Stetsko. And um, it's kind of unclear what happened with that. But after all this time of Stetsko, the U.S. government not wanting, seemingly not wanting anything to do with Stetsko um, and the ABN, uh, all of a sudden now he's in D.C. after this Congress in Mexico City, and he's got a meeting with someone at the Pentagon, and they're interested in him. And so um, maybe, Keith, you'd like to talk more about the where things went wrong with the Mexico City Congress. Um, and I think, but regardless of how the ABN may have botched things there, if only temporarily, um, it does seem that this Congress paid off for them, if only because it looks like it, you know, was Stetsko's ticket to the United States. Mm. Um, and then, you know, as I've also mentioned in previous episodes, and just a few minutes ago, you know, Bandera is going to get assassinated in 1959. And um, Keith also mentions how um, the captive nations lobby kind of steps up after these other American backers back out. Um, so Captive Nations Week is invented basically by um, Dobriansky and Edward M. O'Connor are the two main people involved in drafting that resolution, congressional resolution. And so... You know, after this point, Stetsko's star is going to rise, and um, right. it's uh, I think it's kind of a turning point to some degree for them, for the ABN. And also, maybe, Don, you'd like to jump in and um, talk about Dushnik. Oh, brother. <laughs> well, you mind if I step in here, Keith, and just yeah, please, please. Roll, roll with this a little bit? Uh just, just touching on Stetsko coming to the States in 58, um, I don't think you said it explicitly, Moss, but uh, Dushnik was uh, Stetsko's translator right. for much of that time that Stetsko was in the States during that extended period. He was in the States for a few months, as you well know. You know... What I, you know, I haven't, I haven't prepared anything officially here, other than, other than I do have notes from when you and I and Recluse were talking about uh, the ABN, you know, weeks ago. I look at where people find themselves and who they're dealing with, which is a lot of what we're talking about here, to try and get to grips with Dushnik. So. Which, by the way, is what makes Mark Lombardi, as you were talking about before, Recluse, such an important figure. Because when you were able to 
show people things in some visual manner, it it allows you to connect in ways that otherwise you're not going to be able to connect. Yeah. So so Dushnik, the first thing when I think about him is I think he was not just a he didn't get his translation beginnings with Stetsko. He was a he was a translator for MacArthur's Far East office in Tokyo during the war. We have to ask the question about MacArthur's boys. If we're going to isolate Dushnik as being in that office during that time, who's Dushnik relating to when he's not translating? Is he relating with Willoughby? Is he relating with other people? We don't know. We don't have answers to that question. But when I when I think of Dushnik, I got to think of MacArthur's office in Tokyo immediately. Yeah, that's, that's also, significant. I mean, you know, they called uh, Willoughby Sir Charles for a reason, and that was because, I mean, he had a very um, European-centric outlook on a lot of things. So, I mean, there could have also been that kind of natural uh, attraction as well uh, from just the sort of worldview that they would have potentially held in common. Right. Now, that meeting, or I'm sorry, that trip that Moss just mentioned Right at the uh, beginning of Eisenhower's, uh, well, it wasn't at the beginning of his administration. It took place at the very, very tail end of 52. And I think I think it ended actually in January. Yeah, it ended in January 53, which allowed Dobriansky actually to attend the inauguration, <coughs> excuse me, inauguration festivities for Eisenhower at the end of uh, January when he was sworn in. So that trip, when I think about that trip, there are two things that stick out for me. One, all four of these guys, the other two guys besides Dushnik and Dobriansky, by the way, were Dimitri Halichin. Hal- oh, I think Halichin. Halichin. It's H- like, I'm sorry, Halichin. I can't really say it either, but. <laughs> okay, sorry. I've, I've never been in a position where I've had to pronounce his name. That's me too all the time. Okay. So he, he's a big uh, Ukrainian Congress guy. And, you know, you, you know, the Ukrainian Congress Committee for America, in other words, UCCA. And then you got uh, Stefan uh, Jarema. I'm probably butchering his name, too. That's uh, J-A-R-E-M-A. So these are the four guys that were on that trip. Mm-hmm. Now, they all ended up going to... Italy. And when you go to Italy, you got to say the word Vatican, okay? You can't separate those two things. Certainly not in this case. So we know if if you're going to the Vatican, you know something important is going to be talked about there, okay? And I'll just leave it at that. But then when they leave Italy, then, you know, Halachin and Jerema, they go to Britain. So they're going to be connecting up with the uh, the British alliance with uh, the ABN in Britain, which would which would mean people like John Stewart with the Scottish League. 
and uh, Boney Fuller, uh, also also with the Scottish League. I'm just abbreviating the Scottish League here. And Dobriansky and Dushnik, they go to Spain. Okay, that's that would be Franco Spain. And we already know that Willoughby is in Spain uh, by that time. So then that asks, then you have to ask the question. Okay, if you have Dushnik who was in MacArthur's office in Tokyo during the war where Willoughby is is close by, is there a connection then between Dushnik and Willoughby that extends to that trip? at the end of 1952, beginning of 1953. And if you're talking about Franco-Spain at that time, that is a key logistical point for what would be referred to as the fascist international. Yeah, yeah. Like Daniel Ganser said, in, in Franco-Spain, Gladio was the government. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's just incredible. I mean, how many people were in Spain? I mean, at least, or Madrid specifically. I mean, almost every major far-right player of that era at least kept an apartment uh, there for some part of the year. You know what I mean? <laughs> it was a safe space for, for a lot of, yeah. Right. Well, also, God, the, oh, sorry. Uh, I was just going to say, and by, I, let me just put this as a little add-on to that uh, Vatican part of that particular trip. You know, Dushnik would end up continuing his relationship with the Vatican in, in the years ahead. He would he would continue to go to the Vatican on a on a on a periodic basis. Okay, so did you want to interject something, Moss? Well, well I was just going to add that I think their friend at the Vatican was Ivan Puchko, who right. at some point has been referred to as the uh, the Pope or the Vatican's advisor on Ukrainian affairs, and he ends up in the fifties ending up in the Bandera camp. But also, everything you're saying about Dushnik and Willoughby makes me think that. You know, perhaps the this Pentagon person that uh, Dushnik meets with as a kind of cutout to Stetsko, um, if that could be one of the Willoughby McCarthy people, because yeah, I mean, it just makes you you mean MacArthur. Correct. I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, pretty much. Yeah. I mean, this is what the fabulous MacArthur boys did. I mean, they just basically, you know, I mean, managed. It seems like a lot of these far right uh, contacts, essentially all over the world for years. And I mean, within the United States, of course, as well. Yeah. Uh, when you get into the Christian there, identity yeah. and all this other stuff. So, yeah. There's been the Spiderweb Far East edition, right? I far mean, East. you know. You guys, I mean, you always hear about the OSS old boys and they had a tremendous amount of influence, but the fabulous MacArthur boys had their own thing going and sometimes they hooked up together. Uh, kind of another interesting side note is the World Commerce Corporation, that mysterious uh, company that helped get Taiwan up and going, was probably involved in setting up the Gladio networks in Europe. It had a lot of big Anglo-American guys in it like uh, Sir William Stevenson and Wild Bill Donovan and all these other figures, but... Um, through one of its subsidiaries, uh, I think it was China International Commerce, you know, you've started seeing a lot of contacts with the fabulous MacArthur boys. Of course, you had Admiral Charles Cook, who went in the, uh, the famous cook Polly expedition, all that good stuff. So there was kind of a lineage, and ironically, the major base of operations for the World Commerce Corporation uh, was Madrid. 
to where all these big guys ah. were stationed. Uh, yeah, and of course, the World Commerce Corporation, lots of theories that it took over. Well, it actually did purchase outright a Spanish company called Sofindus that the Nazis had set up. And Sofindus did receive a ton of gold in the waning uh, months of the war. I believe something like 52 tons of it or something like that. So, um WCC may have also been managing some of these uh, looted access gold funds as well, both in Europe and potentially in Asia to boot. So that's something to keep in mind as well. I'd well, like okay. I'd like to okay. add one last thing on Dushnik, if uh, if I could, that is also quite significant. It's not so long after he he returns back to the states uh, from that that trip with Dobriansky and the two other guy, two other uh, Ukrainian Congress guys that he gets assigned down to South America. And basically he becomes the man in charge of all displaced persons throughout South America. Okay. For a few years, actually. Wow. While you know, in what capacity is he? Um, the official moniker, I don't know if I have that right in front of me. Like uh, the UN refugee resettlement. Yeah, 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 it's got, it's got one of those generic sounding names to it. J just know that he, I, I know, I know for an absolute fact that he's the one who's got that position down, uh, down in South America. So he, he's the clear liaison between whatever displaced uh organi dis displaced uh person organizations that are that are uh coming out of you know munich or or otherwise that and then whatever uh regional so-called regional offices are existing in the states that there's some triangular uh, relationship that goes on between say munich and the states and South America where uh, Dushnik is placed at that point. Okay, and we're talking right in the in the major period there in the 50s where you know a lot of these these not so-called Nazis you know are are being you know filtered are being filtered <laughs> are being filtered for lack of a better word being sure. uh, fil filtered into the group not filtered out of the group right mm -hmm. so um and then later he starts meeting with a lot of key people down in south america and then i i caught kind of a break where you know because when i think south america i think odessa i think Deshpine. okay i i think of the nazi diaspora okay that's that's exactly where my mind goes immediately. So, and you know, I'm sorry. Borman and Barbie and the boys. Yeah. Right. Also, also in ahead. 1958, when um, I didn't mention when Dushnik is calling up the CIA, um, trying to organize this thing for Stetsko, he also says to them, hey, why don't you send me on a three month trip to South America and I'll, you know, for intelligence gathering purposes. And it's not clear if that happened, but. It says in there, it's saying like, you know, Dushnik is, you know, with a little bit of right handling, he would be a great asset. Um, although I think whatever he had going with the CIA, I think ends up 
would probably have been compromised in the years to come um, because of his um, allegiance, or whatever you want to call it, to the Bandera faction. Yeah. But, but maybe, Keith, would you want to add, weigh in on the where things went wrong with the Mexico City Congress? Yeah, I'd love to. Then we can we can move the ball forward, although I could listen to you guys go on. I'm, I'm learning stuff here. You guys are dropping some knowledge, man. Um, it's awesome. But yeah, um, it was a the, it was a victory for the ABN. They kind of came out on top um, and they bragged about it in their press organs about how, you know, it was just so unanimous. Everybody thought that they're what I call the liberationist platform where it's basically let's balkanize the Soviet Union and break it up into its in, 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 its individual nationalities and let all of these countries have their own, you know, control their own destiny. Um, <clears throat> Stetsko and the ABN were notoriously, doggedly, 100% on message for like the rest of his life. And sometimes it was to, to a fault. And so... And inside the league and every other source that's come out since then, because that is the er text on the World Anti-Communist League, it's always said that Wackel is this joint project between the Asian People's Anti-Communist League and the ABN. And there's enough to go on out there to where you could reasonably draw that conclusion. But when you actually look at the documents... It's like they were like it's almost like Wackel started in spite of ABN rather than because of it, because they were just like a thorn in the side of everybody the whole time because they were just totally inflexible and totally insistent that any kind of world body adopt their position as far as what we're going to do about the Soviet Union and, and Russian you know, pre-Soviet territorial integrity of the Russian Empire. So um, in 1958, you didn't have this critical mass of all these other organizations joining in yet. And so it became the ABN's show. They had the chops. They, you know, were organized during like World War II. And they were tough. And they're being dominated by the Soviets and infiltrated by the soviets and they had a very front row seat on how to do you know i mean so many of these right-wing groups they would tell you we have to take the communist political warfare capacity and like retool it like a reverse engineer and do it for our cause our side right well the abn was early on able to do just that i mean hitler even said that he's like we're gonna take the common turn type um you know i learned my best tricks from lenin kind of thing you know so so they show up as total veteran hardcore guys and they know how to muscle their way into getting their way and that's what they did this uh, this uh world anti-communist congress for freedom and liberation convenes and they put together like a statement of principles and a political statement and like a policy platform this is what we're going to do and the abn it just looks like they'd written half of it you know um and it's very focused on 
liberating the captive nations. And so one of the organizations we haven't talked about uh, is called the CIAS Committee for Information and Something in Society. It's a it's a it's a German group uh, made out of some of the remnants of the original anti-comintern in Germany. And so um, one of their people, Fritz Kramer, uh, was an agent of uh, a guy named Eberhard Taubert. I can't remember the name right now. He's there as Taubert's kind of agent. And um, he basically has the same opinion as a bunch of people. So I'm going to read a couple of quotes because, you know, Marvin Liebman says, well, these Nazis were there and I show up. And it's like, holy crap, these guys could have been the ones that gave the orders for my mom's family to be killed back in Ukraine, right? So it's easy to take Liebman's word for it um, and how they just totally dominated the thing and it made him just kind of quit and disgust. But there's other people that felt the same way. And so Fritz Kramer's one of them. Not Fritz Kramer, excuse me, Alfred Guilin. Um, He basically said that the ABN and I'll, I'll quote him here, uh, affected the decisions and planning to such an extent that a performance of the World Congress would have resulted in an anti-Russian immigrant Congress. As a consequence, many Western participants withdrew from the planning, which for the moment sank in oblivion. So later on, a guy, Patrick Walsh, who was the head of the Canadian Wackle chapter, writes to Walter Judd in about 1972, and he says the ABN was forever reducing the global aspects of the fight against international communism into a narrower Eastern European aspect. So you can hear from that, that it's kind of like everybody that was in contact with the ABN and tried to sit through one of these meetings kind of was frustrated by Stetsko and the platform saying, this is the way it has to be. But in 1958 in Mexico city, there weren't enough other people around with the kind of strength to kind of shout them down. And so it just kind of became their show. The Latin American contingent uh, was totally fine with it. They, they liked it. Um, and uh, Carlos Bato was a Brazilian admiral. Uh, he was there representing the Brazilians and, you know, they, they were down with the kind of platform and everything that the ABN basically wrote in in a substantial way but um several of the participants as i said they just walked away from it god it's like this is the abn show you know there's more to global anti-communism than just what stetsko and his people want but their policy platform and what 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 should we do is like all taiwan and all abn you know there's this whole big part in there of like this is what the united states should do in east asia you know Facilitate an invasion of the mainland. Um, have the Seventh Fleet cover our cover us so we can make landfall, you know. <clears throat> and then in the ABN parts in Eastern Europe, they're like, this is what we want the United States to do. <laughs> Everybody wants the United States to do all the heavy lifting on this struggle, right? And he says uh, the 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 platform or the you know the the program says you know the U.S. should support people on the other side of the iron curtain to bring it to a state of what do you call it almost war short of war a short of war stance meaning like low intensity conflict guerrilla warfare kind of thing 
So a lot of the policy positions and the program of what we're going to do had a, had a very strong, we want the U.S. to do this over here and we want the U.S. to do that over there. And it's like World War III, you know, is what they wanted. <laughs> and it's like, Uncle Sam, all right, push him to the front. You get out there and, and do it. You know, you talk about foreign lobbies uh, trying to get the Uncle Sam to do what they want, uh, which we talked about in the China lobby episode. It's definitely on full display here. But Marvin Liebman is definitely disgusted by the whole thing. Marvin Liebman would have been your sort of conservative, sure, but kind of middle of the road on a lot of like social issues. And he felt fine to articulate those in his coming out conservative book. But he also apparently did the same thing in 58. So he shows up, he's doing the talking, you know, he's APACL's man in the United States. He comes highly recommended and highly respected. But one of these guys, um, I want to say it's Jorge Prieto Lorenz, who was uh, later in the Tecos, big anti-communist guy in Mexico. He's part of this international committee for the defense of the continent. CIADC is the acronym there. And this was, we talked about this in the China lobby episode. This is like right behind APACL and being the second largest transnational anti-communist organization in the world behind APACL and ahead of the German CIAS, which was the main one in Europe at the time. Anyway, he pens this kind of remembrance of the 58 conference. And, uh, and here's what he says about Marvin Liebman. Uh, he says that, you know, this, he calls him a bold Jew Liebman, uh, heatedly discussed, he says, quote, in favor of a moderation of the anti-communist struggle orienting, he said, all those who participated in it towards a humanism, a liberal opening and a progressivism of social justice. He said that the anti-communist campaign was negative and fought against several of those who had he had just called to the first world anti-communist Congress. So you can imagine all of these guys that are like, you know. Still polishing their their old uh, uh, <laughs> totem cough <laughs> nazi regalia and stuff and they're they keep in their closets and whatever and and you know would lo- love nothing more in some cases to fire the ovens back up you know uh and here comes this 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 jewish guy from america talking about social justice and progressivism and they're like what is this what no we're not <laughs> screw all of that why don't you go back to new york you know so the feeling was kind of mutual um and so he goes back, Marvin Liebman goes back with his head spinning after this Congress and just starts looking for the exit. And they called some meeting, kind of an emergency meeting of some of the people that were the American side of the steering committee. And they invited Fritz Kramer of CIAS. Maybe it was Alfred Guilin, one of those two guys. And they invited Kuching Kang. Didn't invite Stetsko and ABN guys. Like, we're going to have a meeting off to the side to talk about why this thing sank in oblivion and what we can do to, to push it forward. And I guess that meeting sank in oblivion as well, because next thing you know, Marvin Liebman steps out of the whole thing. He offers this resignation letter saying, you know, there's, there's so many different constituencies 
that how could you get them all to come together, you know, in this common cause? It's just, you know, it'd be better to dissolve the thing and not hand Russia, the Soviets, the, the propaganda victory that would surely come from this thing being a failure. Why don't we quit instead of being fired kind of thing? Why don't we just dissolve it until such time we can have more consensus rather than try to push forward and have it fall on its face and look like fools, right? So so he does that, and he apparently takes a bunch of the money in their treasury for himself for his fees, which absolutely pisses everybody off. Um, Lev Dobriansky said as much. He said these guys, these nondescript guys, uh, McNamara and Liebman, uh, show up and they're supposed to be getting this thing off the ground and it's pretty clear they didn't really do anything but you know kind of bankrupt it and scatter it to the winds strangle it in its crib kind of thing so they passed the leadership of this fledgling world anti-communist congress to charles kirsten the former uh wisconsin rep that was a big captive nations advocate um, I think he was like the chief of psychological warfare under Eisenhower or something like that. He was, he had some kind of role in the cabinet that had a psychological warfare, uh, connotation to it. And he agrees to take it over and they're going to have another meeting, but like some of the guys from Latin America and Kuchin Kang, they don't even have the money for airfare because Liebman robbed them, you know, and everybody's just kind of like ticked off uh because of it um meanwhile if, if i could just continue you know i kind of mentioned something to recluse like you know what happened in the 60s that kept it off from from going off like it was supposed to and and my answer was three letters jfk right uh which is too too facile of a way to put it but it, it does kind of hold up um, you know, because there's this kind of rapid series of things that happen over the next couple of years um, that are like galvanizing to the right and they're organizing for the right. Um, I mentioned on the, the Mooney pod that we did, uh, but I'll just say I, I finally finished reading this history of Young Americans for Freedom. It's called The Other Side of the 60s. And I couldn't remember the name of the author, but now I do. His name is John Andrew. And the book came out in 96. So it's like a pre 9-11 book, which makes it like ancient history. But it's kind of mainstream history. And William F. Buckley himself gave it a favorable blurb on the back, you know, as well as David Frum and uh, William Rusher, maybe, you know. So this, it's not some kind of hit piece at all. But but um but anyway, in the beginning of the book, it talks about this struggle over the meaning of being a Republican in the 50s, where you have your party leaders like the Eisenhowers and then like the Rockefellers or whatever. And they just consider the New Deal to be like settled hash. You know, we won the war. We won two wars, got out of the Great Depression, got Social Security. You know, you don't have to work till you drop. We got all this infrastructure improvements and we're like the winners of the biggest war ever and we're just sitting on top of the world and we just cashed in our risk cards thank you fdr you know this was the attitude of even republicans back in the 50s right so i mean they would have even almost 
not balked if, if you called them liberal. It wasn't quite the four-letter word epitaph that it would become when, like, Newt Gingrich, you know, went out there and said, we need to make that a dirty word for real, though. Um, but in, the, in, the, in this late 50s, in the mid-50s, you get Buckley has his CIA-funded National Review gets going in 55. This gets this kind of intellectual basis for conservative ideology. Um, but just like the American Security Council, it was three years into its existence by the time this 58 Congress happens. So there's like a lack of political like infrastructure to really hold this thing together on the American side is what I'm trying to get at. But if you, if you fast forward a couple, two or three years after 58, you know, what are the things that happens? You know, in 1958, it's a big year. For a lot of things, not only does it have this first abortive attempt at a world anti-communist league, but that's the year the John Birch Society starts. And the politician is his little tract about how uh, Eisenhower is a commie traitor is circulating. You know, this is the year the Liberty Lobby gets going. Fifty eight. Um, this is the year that the Institute for. American strategy arm, the foreign policy arm of the American Security Council gets founded in 1958. And it's um, also the it's also the okay. year that the Moon Organization sent their first Korean representative to the West. That's right. You mentioned that before. Yeah. So, it, you know, there's a big year with there's a lot of consolidating. Uh, you have this growing, you know, kind of conservative movement that really galvanizes around Barry Goldwater uh, trying to beat Nixon in the primaries for the Republican nomination. And Nixon is seen as this moderate middle of the road, you know, and, and conservative people are like, there's not even a choice. He may as well be a Democrat. That's how they felt about moderate Republicans. And that's why Goldwater was so like attractive to them. Right. But then 59. Uh, China rolls over Tibet. Castro takes over Cuba and then he gets to visit the USA under Eisenhower. Then you get Kennedy into office. This is the most Yankee liberal internationalist president of the atomic age, probably the last such that we'd ever will ever see. Right. And he's just, just as Yankee as they come. Yeah, it was actually um, yeah. it was like 51 percent of his cabinet were like I believe, or foreign policy staff or CFR members. Um, but actually, Lyndon Johnson, ironically, was, uh, I think, the highest percentage of the Cold War era with 57 percent. But LBJ basically inherited most of Kennedy's uh, cabinet. Essentially, it was, um, I think, kind of the trade off for Vietnam and uh, some of the other things that happened. Yeah. And, and Kennedy with. Uh... With Johnson as his running mate, this is the the central idea of, of uh, the early part of uh, Carl Oglesby's book that I've mentioned a few times, The Yankee Cowboy War. Well, this was that ticket, Kennedy the Yankee and Johnson the Cowboy. It was supposed to be this Yankee Cowboy kind of, you know, coalition that fell apart because, you know, like I mentioned in one of the other maybe the first podcast I did with you, he gets up in front of the UN for the first time. He's like, we're going to hammer our nukes into plowshares and UN blue helmet peacekeepers will settle all international disputes from now on. And like, you know, and so the cowboy people are like, you've got to be kidding me. This is exactly why this guy shouldn't be in office. And by the end of it, you know, 
sabotages Bay of Pigs, gets into that situation whereby Cuba slips under the Soviet nuclear umbrella, thereby closing the door on us being able to really invade like we could have done with a troop of Boy Scouts if we were serious about it. And the other thing that some people have forgotten, but the right sure as hell has not forgotten. You had the thing called like, the, what was it, the Reuther Memo. They had this plan where they were going to use the IRS and other things to go really hard after these right-wing orgs, you know. And they threw in a few lefty organizations just to kind of give themselves cover. But they really did have it in for the for the far right. And they went after them hard. Um, you had uh, Edwin Walker, you know, Ted Walker, the guy that under Eisenhower had to desegregate the schools in Little Rock. And he hated himself for it. Teams up with Billy Hargis for the midnight rides and all this kind of stuff. Well, at the beginning of the Kennedy administration, this guy is doing the anti-communist education thing that Don talked about a little while ago, but he's doing it for U.S. troops in in uh, in Europe, and he called it the Pro Blue program. You know what I'm talking about? And you know, like not only did they like stomp that into the ground, but Robert Kennedy tried to have the guy committed uh, to that mental hospital or whatever in Springfield. And he it was supposed to be for 90 days, but they sprung him out after only five. And, and by the way, that was Robert Morris was his lawyer. That's somebody that John Bellavac talked about in the pod you did with him. But the, the point is, I guess finally, I'll just say they, they really took a dim view of the ABN too, and the whole captive nations thing. And they're pushing for detente with the Soviet Union. So of course, they really don't like Stetsko's positions, right? So a few years later, when Wackel gets going, they issue kind of this long press release giving you the whole history of their attempts to make it into this world body from the Asian to the world. And they talk about the early 60s was a period where they had real bad fundraising problems and an unfavorable attitude of appeasement amongst governments. It's clearly they were talking about the Kennedy government, right? But you had this kind of uh, infrastructure building where you have this really long right wing and right up by the breast here, by the, by the body of the, the right, you know, of the bird, right? You've got like young Americans for freedom, which bleeds into mainstream moderate conservatism a little bit. And then out past that, you've got your John Birch society Right. That's that they're in this kind of struggle with them. And the YAF is saying that John Birch Society are a bunch of extremists and the John Birchers are saying the Young Americans for Freedom are weak and soft. And then out past the John Birch swing, you've got the Liberty Lobby. This is, again, your fire up the ovens uh, constituency. And I was just looking through the. Auguro Heinsohn papers last week, which we just got from the University of Oregon. And, uh, you know, you see some letters from uh, George Stratemeyer to Heinsohn saying, you know, screw Buckley in this. And these guys are they're attacking the John Burt Society. What do they know? They're just they're soft. So you get like these kind of power struggles that are taking place out in the open about is this going to be the John Birch Society party, or is it going to be the Barry Goldwater, you know, party, or is it going to be the Nixon party? 
And meanwhile, you see Charles Willoughby's on the advisory board of Young Americans for Freedom. Just when you think you've got the lines clearly drawn here, like, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. The respectable normal guys got Charles Willoughby on their on their elder statesman list. What the hell? You know, doesn't he belong in the Liberty Lobby camp? Well, I guess he's kind of in all three. Right. Because it's all of a piece. So that kind of infrastructure, political infrastructure didn't exist in 58. But it did by 66 and throughout the rest of the world. uh, It's also consolidating in other in other countries like Suzanne Labine, who was a French fiery orator type who liaison with APAC from early on. She starts these was a conference for conference on Soviet political warfare where they're really looking and doing that reverse engineering thing of like, how how are we going to beat these communists? on the psychopolitical warfare front, you know, we have to take the fight to them because in the war of ideas, we're getting our butts kicked. And uh, the lessons from Algeria and Vietnam for France, something we talked about before, this uh, revolutionary warfare thing where, you know, they're outnumbering them, outgunning them, they got the supplies and they're still getting their butts kicked by peasants that are poorly armed, but they've got the ideology, you know, well, we need to have our own ideology if we're going to beat these guys. So you get things like APACL Freedom Center gets started, and that's a project of APACL with big Mooney involvement. And that gets started in SIL, and I think maybe 65, Don could probably correct me if I'm wrong. But the ASC opens what they called the Cold War Campus in um, Boston, Virginia, in around the mid-60s. And this earlier agitation for the same thing Don was talking about with APACL's original instructions, we need to have education for children, for academics, for our military, to indoctrinate them or uh, inoculate them from communist propaganda. You know, Um, that idea is really taking hold more and more throughout the 60s. And that's what Edwin Walker's pro blue thing was kind of of a piece with all of this stuff that was going all over the world. And then finally, you get um, the Parco di Principe. I'm saying it wrong, I'm sure. It was like a conference in Italy, and I think 65, where they're just like, yeah, let's do Gladio. You know, let's do Gladio. Let's get the police and the uh, gendarmes, you know, involved in helping keep NATO strong in Italy. And, uh, if the communists take the ballot, we'll take them out with bullets kind of thing or false flag terrorism blamed on the left. So this critical mass is building throughout the 60s that and it just wasn't there because American leadership really does matter. And it kind of wasn't. Wasn't together in the way that it would be through the 60s, especially when you get old JFK out of the way. Which they did. Now, were there uh, any additional American reluctances by 66 uh, or so, Keith? Yeah, yeah, there was. Um, all that stuff I said earlier about how, you know, it was going to be this propaganda victory for the Soviets if we have U.S. participation directly in APACL um, was all there when it came to 
well, how about instead of just APACL, it's WACL. We'll have a whole world body, and then the U.S. can be part of that because you're going to be the only country left out. Or so appears to have been the thinking. Um, but Rao and, and Liebman definitely thought the Asian People's Anti-Communist League was fine as it was. And it wasn't even that great to begin with. And so it was like it was going to get too big for its britches if you actually go worldwide for real. Now, APACL had designs on being a world league from the very beginning. They were expanding, like I said, in the other pod. By 57, they're in partnerships with all these Latin American countries. You know, they're signing up to partner with ABN for psychological warfare projects, like within a year of them getting started. So it was Asian in name only from the beginning, right? Um, but the Andersons in uh, inside the league, they described APACL as being a, I think they said a benign and regional paper tiger. And there's some truth to that. You know, it's like how much of these things just letterhead organizations that don't really do anything but look important while they're asking for your money to give to Ben and Jerry versus being actually effective. And um, I got a letter in. Marvin Liebman's collection that was from, uh, I think his name is Tran Tam, is a Vietnamese APAC rep. And he's writing to him saying, you know, they want to make a world league. Give me a break. You know, um, we're one of the core governments of APAC from the beginning. And here's some things that they said they were going to do that they didn't, right? They had, the, they have these conferences and they pass all these resolutions and then they don't even do anything about it. The chairman, lives in Seoul and the secretary general is in Manila. How can these guys even work together and be effective? And they've been talking about a permanent APACL bureau in Saigon, one of the OG countries, capitals of APACL. And they've been talking about it for years and they still haven't done it. This is him writing in, uh, in 1966. So, you know, here's this guy that would really know, right? He's a Vietnamese APACL guy throwing shade on his own organization and saying, you, you don't even have it together as a regional body. How are you going to do this on a worldwide basis? Right. So um, David Rao is like, this is not going to happen. If you go worldwide, it's just going to fall flat on its face. There's nothing but these inter <coughs> interorganizational civil wars that are happening between all the constituents all the time, you know, that's why it didn't work in 58, and that's why it's not going to work now. Uh, meanwhile, when you see the subtitle of Inside the League, it's the it's pretty long. It's like, what is it? The, the, the shocking expose of how Nazis, terrorists, and death squads have infiltrated the World Anti-Communist League, which you know implies that they weren't there from the beginning, which you no, know, they actually were. But I digress. Um, but that Nazi part, everybody knows who they're talking about. You know, it's the ABN. It's 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 the war crime war crimes lobby guys, right? So, do you want to be in the club with them, USA? You know, it was still popular to punch Nazis back then amongst much of the American public. Um, why do you want to be in a club with these guys? And then finally, um, in the fifties, and then on into the 60s, right on the eve of this thing, Kuching Kang, the, the chief of APACL that runs it like his little fiefdom, still has it in his head that if we can just 
get the U.S. to participate directly, we're going to tap into that sweet, sweet well of greenbacks and limitless American dollars. And Liebman is a pro PR guy and fundraiser. He's like an architect, godfather of conservative direct mail fundraising and everything. And he's got well more than a decade, maybe 15 years of just developing his chops in that regard. And he's telling Kuching Kang as late as 66, trust me, I've been doing this for a long time. It's hard enough to do fundraising for actual domestic American anti-communist groups. You guys aren't even from here. Uh, you think you're going to get all this money? You're not. So, yes, there were some uh, real reservations on the part of the Americans going all the way up to the founding of Wackel and, and beyond. Because a lot of their concerns wound up being totally well-founded. <laughs> It just, they weren't listened to. Oh, they never are, really. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, the rest of the world had already taken their own steps to generate support for Wackel, and a big part of that was uh, the Kore Korean youth movement. Now, what was up with that, Keith? And uh, was there also a Japanese presence in this? Yes. Um, the Korean part, I can't speak to as much. Except for, I guess, the, the APACL Freedom Center I just mentioned a minute ago, you know, definitely had that anti-communist curriculum going like uh, like Don Diligent was talking about a little while ago. Um, in the Japanese aspect, their Shokyo Rengo International Federation for the Extermination of Communism doesn't really get going until later in the decade, like after Wackel's founded, some of the boilerplate kind of secondary sources, Don and I have talked about this. They say there's some meeting in the interior of Japan at some resort and Kodama and Sasakawa and Moon are all, you know, got the smoke-filled room going and they're going to start this mass movement in Japan, which turns out to be roundly despised by much of the Japanese public. But that didn't really get off the ground till later but in the mid 60s and throughout the 60s uh they had the kodamas and the sasakawas of the world these japanese oligarchs these uh koromaku uh curtain puppet player guys they were building mass movements of japanese youth um on the right side that were almost kind of like echoes of uh the old uh, Japanese system of patriotic societies that they, you know, the old philosophy was one man, one, one assassination, you know, we'll get there. <laughs> um, but they, they, they did have quite a number of Japanese youth out on the streets agitating against, you know, communism and stuff. And then with Shokyo Ringo, they really kind of helped consolidate some of those groups and make them into a bigger one. But there's a, a really interesting and very niche, uh, very particular, uh, it was like a graduate history thesis or a, a PhD thesis dissertation called, I think it was the ultra right in contemporary Japan or the extreme right in contemporary Japan. I learned about it from reading Jeffrey Bale's stuff in Lobster. You find that reference in one of his things about Korean evangelism. And then I went and got that book and it's it's not even like available but you can get it on interlibrary loan if you know about it but anyway that really gets into that that subject in in some depth all the different student movements 
And I presume that the same thing was going on in Korea. But it was really all over the world. You had like Marvin Liebman himself uh, trying to take YAF internationally, had the World Youth Crusade for Freedom that was going to try to put together this international freedom corps of young people that were trying to get in touch with their inner Ned Flanders, you know, around the world and be good little, good little citizens. But for the most part, as far as like youth movements going, you know, uh, in like Korea and United States and around the world, it was like, well, there's a big war going on in Vietnam. So here's a youth movement for you, young man. Why don't you join the army? (laughs) There's a youth movement. You can really put yourself to good use fighting communism with a rifle in your hand. So I got to say the army armies would have been the, uh, the main anti-communist youth movements of the time. That's a lot of ways they still are. Um, so anyway, I mean, once Wackle starts getting its charter hammered out and so forth, they come up with, uh, their own sort of, uh, inner circle executive body, so to speak, which was dubbed the super committee. So what happened with Wackle's super committee and how did it relate to, uh, this mysterious group, the European freedom council, Keith? Okay. Well, that's a big one. That's a big question. And I'll try to be brief about it. Cause we've, we've been going on for a while. Um, but this will be in the book. Um, I got some information from the Hoover Institution archives where, you know, you find, oh, my God, here in David Rao's collection, they've got the sign-in sheets and the meeting minutes and all the correspondence that he handled around the actual formation of Wackle, you know. Um, and so I poured over all this stuff backwards and forwards and... Here's what I came up with. It, it, it took them five days, you know. Um, so that's that's a big one. That implies a lot of debate, right? But one interesting thing, once again, you get something that things that rhyme with the original 58 conference. Um, the ABN are spoilers, and everybody would just assume they not be in the room. In fact, they didn't even invite them. Uh, Stetsko and Rao. And an Italian politician named Ivan Matteo Lombardo, who was at the Parco de Principe conference where they kicked off Gladio in broad daylight. Um, All three of those guys wound up getting um, to, they they didn't even know about it. Or it it looks like they didn't even know about it. They, They weren't invited at the very least. And the Taiwanese insisted that they be brought in during a recess so that's interesting Rao, by the way as i said was one of these guys that threw cold water on the whole idea of a world anti-communist league and was very strongly against it for reasons i already went into so you could see why they wouldn't invite him i don't know why lombardo wasn't invited but and uh the abn guys it was it was uh yaroslav and his wife slava um, and it's obvious from all the stuff we've talked about why nobody wanted them in the room. But interestingly, the draft charter w- was already ready to go, and it had been partially written by uh, a white Russian immigrant group called the NTS, the uh, Union of Trade Solidarists. And this was one of the groups that like the abn were like we're not even going to be in the same room with these people you know the famous quote which was in russ Ballant's 
old Nazis knew right in the Republican Party is that uh, the problem isn't 70 years of Russian communism. The problem is 300 years of Russian domination. So the NTS would have liked to have kept territorial integrity over the former Russian imperium in a post-communist you know, world. And of course, Stetsko and the ABN wanted it to be scattered into a bunch of little or big um, nations with their own nationalities and ethnic identities and stuff. So they had no love lost for each other at all. So NTS gets a hand at drafting the, 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 the charter before the meeting actually happens. And then there was this other guy, Donald Miller, who looks to have been in one too many of these paper organizations himself. He's the head of something called the All-American Conference to Combat Communism, which was like this uh, conglomeration of something like 40 different American anti-communist letterhead organizations. So you talk about some cat wrangling right there. But he was also the head of the National Captive Nations Committee, which Lev Dobriansky was part of as well. And he was also registered as a foreign agent for the Koreans, either, I think, the, the year following all this. And he was working for the Korean Cultural Freedom Foundation, raising money for Radio of Free Asia, which was kind of supposed to be the East Asian version of, like, Voice of America or Radio Free Europe or whatever, you know. So he's part of these three different organizations and he's showing up and he's also helping write this draft charter. And the reason why Rao didn't get invited was because Donald Miller was perfectly fine saying, oh, yeah, if we get this wackle started, the U.S. will have to join. And yes, you will get lots of money from the United States. So if Rao's in the room, he's going to be like, you're full of beans, man. That's not going to happen. Take it from me. But Miller instead gets to do the job that Rao was not invited to do. It's all really interesting. It's kind of like this power play by this Korean-Japanese faction. And the Taiwanese are getting sidelined. They wanted Rao. He's their old friend. They want him in the room. They've been working with Stetsko and the ABN for years. So the Taiwanese, who are assumed to be like the OG, original, you know, uh, force behind APACL are playing second fiddle at this point to the Koreans. And I guess you'd have to include in that the Moonies, which, you know, it's like it's all the same thing uh, at this point. So uh, it's this weird power play you can kind of detect there. Um, Stetsko and Slava, his wife, wind up walking out, storming out. You know, you don't want to work with us. The uh, ABN wants a plank in the Wackle platform saying that these captive nations, their representatives would all get their own chapters and their own votes in Wackle. And that's something that uh, would have opened the ABN up to have a lot more power in the organization because Idel Ural and some of the made up countries and the real countries that they claim to be representing in this captive nations network um, would theoretically all get a vote. And they could crowd out the Taiwans and the Koreans and the United States or whatever, because their their votes are going to multiply. They just make up another country. You know, <laughs> this is something uh, Moss talked about 
in the in in some of the podcasts that you guys recorded before about some of their they kind of padded their list of captive nations for with some countries that could barely be said to even exist in history but um so so they walked out um carlos peña bato the brazilian admiral uh fresh off the coup in brazil in 63 um or four whatever it was uh you know he's he walks out too he's pissed because all of the favorable stuff about Latin American countries in the CIADC that was part of the 58 platform. You know, he's complaining to Kuching Kang. He's like, Latin American countries didn't get mentioned once, not once. We're just like an afterthought to you people. So screw this. I think we should adopt the 58 platform as the wacko platform. We didn't even need to do all this. But so Setsko turns right around and then within you know, nine months later or something like that, he's starting another group in Western Europe called the European Freedom Council. And it's got representation with the Taiwanese. It's got Fritz Kramer's on it. Susan Labine is on it. Matteo that I mentioned is on it. Um, Bjorn Ole Kraft, if you remember, he's some Scandinavian politician. I'm butchering it probably, but he's on it. Theodore Oberlander, who would have theoretically led the Ukrainian nightingales into battle as part of the Ostpolitik, the East European um, kind of quislings that the Nazis recruited in World War II. Uh, Oberlander was a big part of all that. So here he is back together with Stetsko at the table of this European Freedom Council. And it's kind of almost going to be like competing with CIAS to be the regional affiliate under Wackle, it would be like Wackle, then the European affiliate, then all the individual chapters underneath that, kind of like a pyramid scheme kind of thing. Like APACL would be, you know, the East Asian region, right? So it almost looks like they were kind of competing to be the uh, Wackle regional division in Europe with the CIAS. I'm not totally sure about that. But the point is, here is an anti-communist group in Western Europe that has right out of the bat the liberationist, you know, balkanized the Soviet Union platform that the ABN wants. And not only that, their first meeting, what are they talking about? They're talking about how do we get the the World Anti-Communist League to amend its new charter to put this in here. And so it becomes like this pressure group where their first order of business is to try to lobby, you know, the new newly formed wackle to go back and change it so that uh, the ABN has a greater share of the votes. You know, that's like their first order of business. But uh, if you read uh, David Teacher's Rogue Agents, um, really great book, dense, full of information, full of names. You need to translate it into a Mark Lombardi diagram, like Don said, to understand what you're looking at. But he talks about the European Freedom Council at some length. But yeah, that's kind of what happened with the, with all that. All right. Now, Moss, did you have anything to add about uh, the Ukrainians in this period uh, on top of what Keith has already said? Yeah. So the 60s was very interesting, I think, um, with this whole drama between the CIA-backed Ukrainian nationalists and the Bandera camp. Um, and that's, as I previously referenced, in this time, 
Dobryansky and Dushnik and other leaders of the Ukrainian Congress Committee of America are being drawn into the um, Bandera camp. And so there is a, I think, a very interesting memo written between two, looks like two kind of division or department heads within the Soviet division of the CIA in um, March 1964. And the, the, the subject line of the memo is um, reported resettlement of the OUNB headquarters from Munich to Washington, D.C. Now, this doesn't happen, but um, what it's saying is that in October and November 1963, which is, you know, when Kennedy is assassinated, that the that the that the OUNB leadership, um, Stetsko and two others, including this guy, Ivan Koshuba, who um, I think there's a strong argument to be made that he was, um, you know, that he's a. Uh, could have been a, a double agent. Um, and he was the, the head of the OUNB's um, like intelligence service. Um, but they all make this trip to the United States with the view of relocating their headquarters to DC from Munich. And um, they, the memo says that this was reportedly done with the approval of certain uh, US intelligence and congressional circles. I think we can guess who the um, the congressional circles are, you know, all these people that we've been talking about that are within the ABN's orbit. But then as for U.S. intelligence, you know, I think that goes back to this thing with Dushnik in the Pentagon um, representative and that um, it does suggest that perhaps that went somewhere and that there is some sort of you know, it could just be referring to all these ex-intelligence people in the American Security Council. But, I mean, there's hints that um, perhaps the OUNB, and that would mean by extension the ABN, would have some kind of connections or support in um, perhaps the Department of Intelligence, the, what is it, defense, the, what does the DIA stand for? Defense Intelligence Agency? Um Yes, that's uh, correct. Defense okay, yeah. So whether it be DIA or um, U.S. military intelligence or what have you, but they're saying the above information, if true, is alarming. Uh, we feel an obligation to prevent such a move or at least to warn all concerned, you know, in the U.S. establishment that they are dealing with assets controlled by the opposition, meaning the KGB, and that the individuals named above have a record of anti-American activity. So the following year, 1965, is um, when this monument in D.C. is unveiled of Taras Shevchenko, who um, is a is accredited with you know being kind of the founder of the modern um, Ukrainian literature and even the language itself. Um, he's like the Ukrainian Pushkin. And someone who was and still is celebrated by Ukrainians basically of all stripes, um, you know, the hardcore anti-communists and um, those in the Soviet Union were all, you know, trying to claim his memory. He's a um, 19th century figure. And so in addition to the Captive Nations Week um, resolution, this monument was kind of 
Dobriansky's shining achievement um, in terms of, you know, his standing in the Ukrainian-American community. And so that's unveiled in 1965. And according to the CIA documents, that is when, after 1965, is when Dobriansky starts to actually become not just supportive of the OUNB, but actually hostile hostile towards the um, the CIA-backed uh, Ukrainians. And allegedly, this started with an, with a dispute about which who uh, of the Ukrainian nationalists would get to sprinkle the soil from Ukraine uh, on the Shevchenko monument at its unveiling. And so this like little petty dispute apparently um, was the, the powder keg for the whole thing. And so in 1967, um, the, uh, the year of the, the founding of the European Freedom Council is also the year of the creation of what was originally called the World Congress of Free Ukrainians, and now is the Ukrainian World Congress. And apparently it was, um, that whole thing was spearheaded by a different faction of the OUN, but by the 1990s at the latest, um, the Ukrainian World Congress would be taken over by the Bandera people, and that is still the case today. Um, as just a brief aside, today the the first vice president of the Ukrainian World Congress is the international leader of the OUNB. Um, but earlier in 1967, there was this uh, commission uh, set up by LBJ to evaluate the U.S. Uh, criminal justice system. He Katzenbach, I don't know if I'm saying that right, commission. And there was, um, up until this time, there was various different means of um, oversight of the CIA, I think usually under the umbrella of the National Security Council. Um, but so I think there was, there was like a secret um, part of the this commission that was looking at oversight of the CIA. And as a result, well, also at this time, with this feud getting worse, Dobriansky starts to go public with these accusations that um, this other faction of Ukrainian nationalists is supported by the CIA, which the CIA, you know, interprets as Dobriansky basically going to war with them and trying to smear the CIA and to destroy um, their uh, operation what they've got going with these other Ukrainians who were formerly with Bandera. And so basically as a result of this, for the first time, these various oversight committees, which went by different names, but I think at this time it's called the 303 committee, evaluates the, um, takes a first look at the CIA's Ukrainian operations. And it's determined that what they're doing actually, you know, isn't, you know, that there's some, they don't use this word, but illegal stuff going on in terms of, you know, the CIA is supposed to be a foreign intelligence service. Um, <clears throat> meanwhile, their, their principal front group with all this stuff, the Prologue Research Corporation, is based in New York City. And ostensibly, the whole thing is targeting Soviet Ukrainians. And yet they also acknowledge at this time, finally, that there's some inevitable, quote unquote, spillover into 
um, the U.S. Um, but they're also producing English language um, digests. And so the CIA um, is essentially um, propagandizing the Ukrainian-American community. And they end up taking another, they again internally will acknowledge that's the case um, in the 80s when the Department of Justice's Office of Special Investigations, which is basically this Nazi hunting unit, um, goes after um, their main guy, Michael Labed, and they realize that they have the same issue, that if this stuff gets exposed, they're looking at a scandal, not just because of that they're dealing with Nazi collaborators, um, they're in denial about his past, but um, the implications that this whole thing is has an aspect to it that is probably illegal um, because of its involvement and of its targeting of the Ukrainian-American community. So, yeah, 1967 is a big year, not just because of the founding or the creation of the World Anti-Communist League, but um, with the Ukrainians um, that this stuff is reaching a fever pitch. And Michael Labed is um, complaining to a CIA officer and saying he's speculating that Dobryansky must have CIA contacts and his case officer, you know, denies this. Um, and instead, Labed is saying, oh, well, it must be DIA or something like that. And he and Michael Labed is asking his case officer, you know, can't you guys intervene somehow and get these people in line? Um, you know, maybe through the American Security Council. And I'll just end that by saying, just to read a little bit from this, which is um, Michael Labed's case officer relaying what Michael Labed said to him um, and saying, CIA bows to West German pressure. The OUNB is protected and in operational relationship with the West Germans, by which he specifies he means Oberlander in particular, and saying, Dr. Oberlander is the protector of the Banderites, and we, meaning the CIA, bow to Oberlander and his ilk in West Germany. Then, too, Dobriansky is in close contact with Oberlander, as is Walter Dushnik and other UCCA, Ukrainian Congress Committee of America, men of Banderite persuasion. CIA must see the political ramifications of Dobriansky's scheming. And then Labed goes into something of a rant about the American Security Council and then concludes by saying Dobriansky's goal is to isolate and finish off Prologue, um, meaning the Prologue Research Corporation, which is their the CIA front. And um, so, yeah, I mean, it's like, I think... By the time Reagan comes to office, it's like the this anti-CIA um, faction of the OUN, by which I mean the Bandera people, almost kind of like through their connections to the World Anti-Communist League, through perhaps the Willoughby MacArthur type of stuff, just these private um, interests that they're almost able to um, trump the CIA and... Um, I think um, 1967 is uh, kind of somewhat of a turning point, or at least just an important year in that development of the, um, you know, a lot of people think of the CIA as all powerful, but into, 
this extent, it almost makes Dobryansky seem, to some extent, almost more influential or more powerful than the CIA. Because they don't want uh, mm. go to come to the U.S., Dobryansky gets them to the U.S. You know, they... Um, and and they seem almost helpless here in 64 when they want to relocate uh, their headquarters to D.C. And it doesn't happen. And yet after Dobryansky gets them in at 58, it's like Stetsko seems to be able to come to the U.S. whenever he wants. And um, right. they just are just yeah. building influence all the way up until Reagan. I mean, it, it really seems like especially they had a lot of backing at that point from the fabulous MacArthur boys. Because, I mean, in the case of Willoughby specifically, I mean, he had ties to both Oberlander um, and the BND. I mean, very strong ties. And, of course, Peter Dale Scott and um, was it, I believe, the death of JFK or something like that had speculated uh, that it was the BND that was one of the major financial backers of Willoughby's uh, kind of private intelligence network. Um, and of course, Willoughby was also, I mean, had contacts by Stetsko, I believe, at least uh, by this time or shortly afterwards, if I'm not mistaken. So uh, he yeah, was they had just the International Committee for Defense of Christian Culture. That uh, yes, Stetsko yes, and then Willoughby. Yeah, and then Willoughby was involved with the International yeah, Committee for the Defense of Christian Culture, and that also brings in the whole nexus of Le Cercle. Um, You had a lot of guys like Pinay and what have you who were uh, later become major figures in Le Cercle and that whole nexus as well. But yeah, I mean, it really kind of goes back to that network in Spain, and Willoughby was certainly one of the pivotal American figures with this and just the phenomenal amount of connections that he had all over the world. So, I mean... Certainly with the kind of just incredible access he had, I think he would probably have been the most logical backer for this, especially since his ties to the BND, Oberlander, and Stetsko are pretty well established. Mm. Um, sorry, I didn't mean to like steal your thunder there a bit, Moss. No, no, I was done, except that that gave me a new thought is um, to tie back into the conversation we were having about the China lobby, which then got into these other so-called ethnic lobbies. It's like that's something to consider that um you know that stuff at this point in time that stuff is um picking up steam in a major way and so it's like you've got you know as far as the ukrainians go um the the anti-cia or the the faction that the cia doesn't support has now basically trumped the um the cia uh in terms of the ukrainian american community the organized community and now Dobryansky and others from the Ukrainian Congress Committee of America um, go on to be, you know, the the foundation of the Republican Party's outreach to um, to the Ukrainian American community. So it's like if you're the C if you're um, if you're the CIA, you've got to be thinking like this is getting out of hand, and. Um, you know, at this point, I think might be the point at which it was perhaps too late for the CIA to to really do anything about it, because now it's like they're got all these friends in Congress and it's just getting yeah, more and more. Kind of a, a kind of proverbial Frankenstein's monster, effectively. Um, something the U.S. intelligence services have a uh, 
habit of creating. Of course, those I said earlier, I mean, the Pentagon itself arguably has become a Frankenstein's monster in the most extreme sense. So I would probably make a lot of sense that uh, these kind of Ukrainian factions and so forth would eventually gravitate to the U.S. military since, I mean, ultimately that was really the major champion of this kind of anti-liberal, you know, globalist uh click that controlled virtually everything else effectively in terms of financial resources and so forth. Um, but all right, I know it's been a long one, guys, so let's wrap it up. We've got all the cards on the table now, and so we get to the main question. Why did it work in 66 and not in 58? So, Moss, do you want to start off with that? Um, I think I'll pass it over to Keith. <laughs> okay, uh, Don, actually, Don, do you want to go first? Uh, yeah. Up? Since like Keith can kind of give us the grand finale here, since it was the basis of his manuscript. <laughs> okay, well, I, I want to give kind of a, a more of a perspective of uh, connections, which leads to the concept of networking. Uh, I don't think I'm as qualified to address you know, why something did, didn't happen versus did happen in the context of the overall discussion here. But, but what I have to offer, I think, is important in terms of understanding who all the players are, how close they are to each other, uh, even in proximity, in terms of physical proximity. So anyway, <clears throat> let, me, let me just go back to our, our last pot where I was ruminating uh, about Ree's kitchen cabinet and how I, I view Sigmund Ree's kitchen cabinet as being important in terms of how the beginnings of APACL and or the Moon Organization came about. So, you know, we had Walter Profeta, you know, the infamous character that we attribute to the JFK assassination theories of Peter Lavenda, et cetera. So he's meeting with the with this first kitchen cabinet guy, Ambassador Lim. But right after the Mexico City conference, during the time that Stetsko is in the States, they have a um, there's an event where another kitchen cabinet guy uh, en ends up showing up. OK, and his name is Yu Chan Yang. He was the Korean ambassador to the U.S., from 51 all the way up until Re uh, was asked to step down in 1960. And uh, this guy was very close to Re. I mean, he actually studied with Re uh, at Harvard. So, I mean, he, these guys have known each other a, a very long time. Uh, so he's a clear kitchen and cabinet confidant, etc. And what makes this more interesting is that if we fast forward just a few years from 1958, um, and I'll talk about the meeting uh, where that becomes important in 58 in a second, but I just want to say that Yu Chan Yang is the one that helps establish Bohe Pox uh, KCFF just a few years later. Uh, starting in 1963 is when all the preliminary work for KCFF starts taking place. So we got a guy here who is going to be meeting, uh, you know, key, a key ABN uh, person, uh, 
well, I'll just say it. He he meets Stetsko, and he meets Dobriansky at the 15th uh, anniversary celebration uh, uh, for the founding of ABN, and it was sponsored by the American Friends for the ABN. So, once again, we've got the American Friends of ABN with uh, with Walter Profeta back in 1953 for the 10th anniversary celebration. Now we have five years later, the 15th anniversary celebration. And now we have another kitchen cabinet guy who ends up helping establish Sun Myung Moon's first front group organization in the States. Now he's meeting with Stetsko and he's meeting with Dobriansky and all these guys are giving speeches you know, at this particular event, okay? Um, and just adding a little bit of high strangeness here is that that event that takes place in 58 was at the New Yorker Hotel, the very hotel where Sun Myung Moon uh, chose who my first wife was to be, okay? So we've got some high strangeness in terms of synchronicity here when we're talking about these things always wow. makes always makes me feel like I'm on the right track when this high strangeness synchronicity stuff comes into play. Okay. So definitely. So then after that meeting takes place, then uh, in the spring of 1959, you've got Yang's uh, top embassy staff guy by the name of Pyo Wook Han He's apparently being directed by Yang to participate in this ethnic studies program at Georgetown University, where Dobriansky is. In fact, Dobriansky was one of the top sponsors of this event. And you've got you've got people at this event showing up like Paul Leinbarger, who's, you know, a top psychological warfare educator, uh, you know, at the time. And. You know, and another interesting aspect of of the timing of this is that this is all lining up to when Moon's first Korean envoy, quote unquote, to the States, Young Un Kim, who I've talked about in the MRA podcast and otherwise, this is when she's actually coming to the States. So th this is stuff that's going on uh, parallel or parenthetically to the the events and the meetings that I'm talking about here. And then uh, you've got another kitchen cabinet guy that, that shows up uh, after that. His name is Young Lee Su. I, I read that he was like a fixer, quote unquote, for, for Sigmund Rhee. And then in the beginning of 1963, uh, now, now we're talking about uh, Chung Hee Park is president of, of Korea and we got the KCIA in place now, et cetera. So once again, you know, we've got this this kitchen cabinet guy. He's at Dobriansky's university. You've got to think that there's a, a connection there with this particular uh, Cold War, um, like freedom studies type type of event. It's pre-freedom center but it has all the makings of, a, of an educational event that might mimic what would take place, you know, at 
either the Freedom Center that's over in Korea or the Freedom Center that gets established a couple of years later that Keith talked about earlier uh, at Boston, Virginia, that, that was sponsored by the American um, uh, Security Council. More specifically, it was the American, um, uh, what was that called? The American uh, Educational Institute. Uh, yeah, I think that's what it was called, which is basically just under the uh, auspices of the American uh, Strategy Council. So anyway, point being here is you, you've, got, you've got all these kitchen cabinet guys. By the way, at that last event that I mentioned that took place um, at the, uh, not, not Georgetown University in this case, there was, an, there was, another, there was another event. Um, I'm going back now to young Lee Sue. He was the guy I talked about before this other guy. The, all these Korean names, it's, it's, hard, it's, <laughs> it's hard to keep it straight. But anyway, young Lee Sue, who I just mentioned before, at his event, they had, they had uh, once again, this is, a, this is a political forum put on by the American Friends of ABN, which is going to then be a, a form what we'll call it for what's to come with with these freedom freedom centers. So anyway, you had Edward O'Connor there, okay, who uh, Keith has already talked about. He's connected with the Psychological Strategy Board. You have Charles Kirsten there. You've got Michael Fayan there. I actually brought up Fayan in the Moral Rearmament podcast, and Kirsten, you know, besides what Keith was talking about earlier, you know, Kirsten. And I don't think Moss brought this up, but Kirsten was one of the lawyers for the slain Stefan Bandera, you know, when the trial took place for the murder of Bandera. Kirsten was sitting right next to Bandera's widow when the Soviets uh, were being tried, you know, for the murder. Wow. So, Wait. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. Oh, did you know that Moss or no? No, no. And you're talking about um, you're talking about uh, Bogdan Stashinsky. Correct. Stichinsky? Correct. Correct. When he was on trial, right? Exactly. Wow. Right. So Kirsten is at the lawyer's table with Bandera's widow. Okay. So, I mean, you could tell. I mean, just just the fact that Kirsten <laughs> is sitting at at this event, okay, next to Bondero's widow. I mean, that that tells you about everything or anything you would ever want to know about Kirsten, in terms of his importance in this in this whole dynamic that we're talking about here. Okay, so so anyway, you guys get the picture here, um, and once again, you know, you've got you've got the KCIA you know, that's looming in the background here, you know, in terms of, of their connections to this. So I'm, I'm just trying to fast forward here quickly, you know, because, you know, we, uh, I still have a couple of things I want to cover here. So just the point then, just to close up the kitchen cabinet thing, is that it's just really intriguing to me that these kitchen cabinet guys from Sigmarie's government having connections with Profeta, ABN, Dobriansky, 
etc. It just makes me wonder big time if these associations or relationships have a direct correlation with the beginning of either the moon organization or APACL or maybe both. I mean, once again, you've got a lot of timing and synchronicity here going on, which, you know, you just don't want to dismiss it out of hand as just being coincidences. I'm just not much on coincidences at this point in my life, you know, given all the stuff that I've gone into in my research up until now. And actually, there's another little synchronicity thing that I should probably bring up. Towards the end of 1964, around Thanksgiving time, Dobriansky went to China for the 10th APACL conference, you know, Free China. Uh, and Stetsko was there as well. And according to the Ukrainian Weekly, it seems like Richard Nixon and Dobriansky had a lot of quality time together in Taiwan. And what makes that very interesting is that Bohi Pak had just solicited Nixon's endorsement for the KCFF, which had just been established a few months earlier. And also Bohi Pak was in Korea at that time of the APACL conference. So this has got me thinking that maybe there was something that got discussed or was agreed upon, say, with the Korean APACL representative and or Bohi Pak, something that would have meant that it was now a go for Sun Young Moon to go to the U.S. because it was only six weeks after that APACL conference that Moon set foot in America for the first time. And of course, we already know that the KCIA is endorsing the KCFF and by extension Moon. So I guess you could say that gives us a little bit more to think about here in terms of why Sun Young Moon went to the West for the first time when he did. Okay. So, um, so then I guess one other thing I want to talk about here in terms of connections and networking is the fact that one of the great things that happened when I was going through the zip files that uh, Keith passed on to me is you get a chance to see addresses. You know, when you when you read boilerplate, <clears throat> I'm starting to lose my voice here. When you're starting to, uh, when you go through boilerplate type of uh, research, let me take a sip of water here. <clears throat> a lot of times you don't get the opportunity of being able to see addresses, okay, which is one thing that happens when you get to go through uh, archive collections, you know, the way that, that Keith did. <clears throat> so let me just let me just tell you who we can tie to the Moon Organization's first front group uh, location, okay, which is 1028 Connecticut Avenue in Washington, D.C. So who else is in this building? We've got Mark Lewis who is the chairman of the Council Against Communist Aggression. And for those who don't know and we haven't really discussed, uh, CACA or CACA. CACA, definitely. We would would (laughs) want to really call that the first true Korean lobby anti-communist organization. That, that, That would be my assessment. 
in the so United States. In the in the United States, correct. And it's so, clear that none of these people spoke Spanish because when they say, well, what's your organization called? It's called CACA. <laughs> and it's like, uh, yeah, you want to change that? And, and by the 80s, they did. But yeah, in the early days, it was called CACA, uh, completely without irony. Uh, and right. the Ukrainian and, Congress and, and, Committee is UKACA. <laughs> oh, right. Exactly. Oh, that's hilarious. Yeah. yeah. So then, Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, not a problem. Okay, so who else is in 10? Now, remember, these are pretty good size office buildings in downtown D.C., but you can't dismiss the fact that, okay, that these people all are in the same building, which then would have all the benefits that come with being in the same building, right? Yeah, same same coffee pot, same bathroom, potentially. Right, you know, right. We're eating our sandwich in the same uh, kitchen. Not necessarily, right. but it the it possibility shoots way up, right? Right. You, you you have the you have the possibility of sending uh, young young couriers with envelopes between offices. Okay. <laughs> you have the opportunity of, like you say, maybe eating at the same diner, which is on the corner. All these types of things come into play if if you're if you're actually working within this type of ultra close proximity. So anyway, getting back to 1028 Connecticut Avenue, Washington, D.C. The John Birch Society has an office in this building. Oh. Okay. You have you have the Security Consultants International in this building, which is a spy and bugging business where uh, Lucian Conin worked with Mitch Werbel in that building. That's the one that uh, Jim Hogan talked about in Spooks. Yeah. Correct. Okay. Once again, I started this out with Sun Myung Moon's first front group having an office in this building. Okay. Okay. You have the Drug Enforcement Administration with an office in this building. <laughs> and that's okay. also interesting because uh, Cohen was also accused of, like, what, effectively running that death squad or something with the DEA, DEA during the Nixon years, right? Right. See? there, There you go. Then you've got Donald Miller in this building, who we haven't brought up yet, and I found out through a congressional record report, has a history with naval intelligence. Wow. So in this building, he's connected with five, count them, five different organizations slash businesses. He's got his own business that he's calling the Associated Public Relations Counselors. <laughs> he's the executive director to the All-American Conference to Combat Communism. Okay. He's also the executive secretary to another group that would be segued with this called the Friends of Free Asia. We already know he's connected with Bohi Pak and the KCFF in this building. He's also connected with another group that smells of something that Keith and I just talked about privately. This is called the Associated Senior Consultants, Inc. Okay. The fleecing of our elderly comes to mind when I read that name. And we have the Heritage Group Council for Citizenship Education, where he serves on the board. 
Well, that's an interesting heritage group. Gee, can anyone say Heritage Foundation, possibly? Now, I don't have a direct link between the Heritage Group Council for Citizenship Education and the Heritage Foundation, but it certainly raises the question, doesn't right. it? Yeah. And finally, once again, in 102A Connecticut Avenue, you have the International Rescue Committee, which has its beginnings with David Martin, who I talked about earlier was a top Mooney advisor from the very early days. So that is all within that building. Then across the street, directly across the street at 1025 Connecticut Avenue, we have the offices of the American Coalition of Patriotic Societies, which got discussed with Recluse and his last uh, oh, yeah, that was John Trevor, right? Uh, correct. Uh, yes, uh, well, there were two. There was Senior and Junior. Senior had been the uh, World War One era military intelligence officer who uh, what had the plan in New York to round up all of the Jews and uh, African-Americans in case of insurrection or something like that. Right. And uh, George and George. I'm sorry, Freudian slip. Charles Willoughby is also involved, as 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 you would know. Quite oh, well. yes. Recluse. And, and another interesting thing about the Trevors, too, is both of them knew um, uh, General Paul Gaynor, uh, the head of the security research staff within the CIA's Office of Security, which was uh, the main body that oversaw Project Artichoke as well. Okay, okay. Wow, connections. Right. Mm -hmm. Another office in that same building is the National Rights to Work Committee. Which has, which was a, uh, an ultra right type of organization that had strong links to not only the John Birch Society but also the Young Americans for Freedom. It's so interesting how, when you talk to William F. Buckley, like he likes to separate himself from the John Birch Society. Well, Keith and I both have a different view on that. So yeah, no, it's it's just kayfabe for the for the for the the front page. But they're uh, all right. cozy. They're right. all cozy, and they're sharing the same water cooler. <laughs> right. And then, and then, another organization that has its beginnings and is located in 1025 Connecticut Avenue, right across the street, as I was saying, was the American Anti-Communist Association, aka American Anti-Communist League. When I looked on one of the letterheads. Uh, in a FOIA document uh, showing information on this organization, there was a man, uh, a professor by the name of, I'll probably butcher his name, Gabor de Basenye. And he is a key American Friends for ABN figure years later. Okay. So, and then just one more connection right right down the street at 1001 connecticut avenue we have a a patriotic organization tour called for america where there are links to not only charles willoughby but also bonnie fellers and pedro del valle and probably and, and, and probably a bunch of other guys Valle. yeah it, it, right organization is all over the, the 
the Order of St. John as well. Right. You know, they would be lurking around there somewhere, too. Right. So yeah. so yeah. so then what can we just say then about that block area of D.C.? See, we're, we're starting to paint a picture that the MacArthur, the MacArthur boy thing, you feel it. OK, you sense it. Right. You were in you were in the service. What theater? Pacific. <laughs> Every time. Every time, right? There's no right. European cowboys. It's always the China cowboys. Right. So we're not talking about conspiracy theory here. We're talking about where people work. Okay. And if you work it within a certain proximity of somebody else, that means you can network very easily with that person or people. You don't have to even schedule it. You just bump into them in the hallway. Right. Exactly. So... I'm hoping the listeners are truly appreciating the significance of this and what it means when we when we evaluate things, okay? Because yeah, Marvel, it's not theory, it's history. You know, like you actually got a document you can hold in your hands and you know, like they share the same address. It's not a theory. It's right, you know. Yeah. Right. Right. And then and then I my since I'm on a roll here Let's look at 79 Madison Avenue, New York, because that would be called Mr. Liebman territory. Okay, Marvin Liebman. You've got you've got the American Afro-Asian Educational Exchange in this building. Okay, that's Liebman. Not only Liebman, but that's Walter Judd. Okay, that's David Rao. Okay, you've got the committee of one million in that building. Once again, Liebman, Judd, Rao, etc. You've got the Young Americans for Freedom in that building. Okay? You've got Marvin Liebman Associates in that building. You have the American African Affairs Association, which had as its co-chair William Rusher. Can anyone say Buckley Network? William F. Buckley Network, okay? You have the World Youth Crusade for Freedom, YAF Front, in that building, okay? But probably the most interesting business that's in that building, and Keith and I talked about this privately, is you have the publishing house, Dodd, Mead, and Company, which is the book publisher for the Wackle book, of the Andersons, that is also in that building, mm-hmm. which raises a lot of questions. If you ask me, well, if you have, go I ahead. Mean, certainly, you could go. To, you could point out that there are some rather glaring things that they do not address at all, such as the rather extensive legacy that some of the partners had in drug trafficking, for instance. <laughs> right, glaring omission there. Right. You know, and, and, and not to mention the fact that we know that one of the Andersons has Jack Anderson as his father. And Jack Anderson has his history connected with the OSS boys of China. That's been documented. And not only that, Jack Anderson got involved with Diplomat National Bank which was one of the big things that Donald Fraser and his committee were investigating with Bohe Pak 
and Koreagate. So <laughs> I've just done a lot of Mark Lombardi dot connecting there, okay, and particularly yeah. as we're talking about <laughs> the, these addresses, right? I have uh, inside the league on PDF in addition to hard copy, and I'm almost through the whole thing. Control F, Liebman. Adobe Acrobat has finished searching the document. No matches were found. So when you brought that up to me the other day about Liebman's building, where you know most of those groups you just listed, Liebman was part of all of those. Afro-American Educational Exchange. That was right. him and David right. Rao doing that. You know, World Youth Crusade for Freedom. That was a Liebman project. So all those things make sense. But the Dodd and Mead being in the same building and then inside the league skips over some things. It goes hard after the, the Moonies. It's one of the few books to actually really put some heat on those guys, right? But yeah, no, no, nothing really about drug trafficking except for a little hint about the, the Moonies. But nothing about APACL. Nothing yeah. about not really doesn't really get into the China lobby roots of APACL. It just kind of glosses all over all that because, you know, to be honest, there was a war going on. There was a bunch of wars going on and there was a bunch of ugly stuff happening in the 80s. And that book got kind of dismissed by some critics as being polemical or whatever. Well, you know, these guys were reporting and they were on the ground, like escaping death by the skin of their teeth and just getting out of the country just in time. Or there's one story where, you know, this guy's showing them around to one of their model villages and they're going in by helicopter to see him hand out soccer balls for these American reporters, you know, to see, yeah, we see we're being really nice to the peasants here and it's all good down here. And, you know, the next day that same helicopter gets blown up, you know, <laughs> if they'd been on it the, the following day, they'd have died, you know, so like these guys were pretty traumatized by the experience of, of being on the ground reporting in these dirty wars. So if their book was kind of polemical, they definitely earned the right, right, to be a little alarmist about the whole thing. But Liebman's name doesn't appear in it, and it's in the same building. I wonder, is this a kind of limited hangout? Is this uh, yeah, you, I mean, I was going to point out. spilling the beans on them ahead of time before he publishes his own book where he kind of denounces all these people that he worked with for decades? Yeah. Well, I was going to say, it kind of seems like they really, um, you know, hang out to dry a lot of the uh, groups within Wackle that Liebman really had an axe to grind with. I mean, obviously, right. the Ukrainians and so forth, um, the Tecos, uh, you know, yeah. a couple of the other ones. I mean, they really kind of, you know, pile on these guys. Well, yeah, definitely sort of downplaying the fact that you did have these sort of, uh, you know, Eastern establishment, conservative internationalist figures that were lurking in the background through a lot of it as well. And uh, basically kind of pretending like they never had any kind of role in it at all, essentially. That's just when you mentioned that to me, it was like, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Yeah. And then there it is. You know, that's a it's really interesting, man. Yeah, but nobody still wanted to, to tackle the drug trafficking. Nobody, nobody wanted to tackle that. Um, well, all right, Keith. Yeah, Peter uh, Dale Scott for right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right, Keith. Well, I know you got a and d game uh, you got to be playing here soon. So, uh, you know, why don't you take us on here into the home stretch and give us your two cents yeah. on why it worked in 66 and not 58, brother? Well, I'll just say what... Uh, that, those connections that Don just gave us, that's just fantastic right there. That's just really laying out 
like the physical geography of these connections with people, not just their names appearing on letterhead, but, you know, sharing the same bathroom, right? Potentially. Um, but I'll say John, John Birch Society wasn't at that office in 58 because they didn't exist. You know what I mean? Uh, same thing for a lot of those other groups. And I, rather than say all the things that I said earlier, I'll just refer the listeners to my earlier comments where I guess I kind of jumped the gun on this. There was a, a building of infrastructure and all these different organizations and all these different pressure groups that existed by the mid 60s that did not exist in the late 50s. And, it, you know, I could almost just leave it at that. But to go back to what Moss was saying about these, you know, Lev Dobriansky, I fought the CIA and I won. Holy crap, right? Um, who were the guys that were pushing back against American involvement, direct involvement in APACL? And who were the guys that were pushing against the idea of a world anti-communist league? Well, it was these liberal CIA guys, you know, David Rao and Marvin Liebman and other people like them that were dubious about it. Well, they were CIA guys, too, but it was that kind of, you know, blue blood, original kind of stratum, you know, of the original kind of CIA where it was very uh, Yankee, very Atlantic um, oriented and and a little more liberal in its politics, anti-communist. But, you know. I don't know that it gets murky. I should probably back off of some of that. Cause it's, it, it's, it's not that cut and dry. Right. But there were these arguments against it, that it would be this puppet of America and these arguments against it, that it would be opening the door to the appearance of, if not the outright instance of uh, an ostensibly civilian group chapter of the American branch of the World Anti-Communist League that would be lobbying this world body, some members of which had their chapters as actual extensions of their government, not civilian, and that could put them at cross purposes with the United States foreign policy. This was some of the arguments against that from the beginning, not just of WACL, but APACL and in direct U.S. involvement. Well, they those voices lost as i said they start their chapter in 70 and the gang's all here you know not going to get into it too much maybe we can do a another one about the 70s and 80s but that whole notion of a what i would call a deep state apparatus where the american government has and its representatives in congress or even the president have decided that we're doing this and we don't like it, so we're going to do that and go around them. This was the fear uh, or the the source of some trepidation about the early skeptics like Liebman and Rao that later turned out to be exactly what happened. You know, so in the 80s, you have the golden age of Wackel and the ASC. But again, I repeat myself, and they're holding these conferences on American soil where they're flaunting uh, the Boland Amendment saying you can't give money to the Contras because of their wickedness or whatever. And they've got guys taking the stage begging for money and helicopters and ammunition and supplies that literally, in some cases, weren't allowed to be in the country legally. Terrorists, you know, Gladio guys. Um, apparently, I 
read in one source that apparently they circulated T-shirts uh, with Osama bin Laden's face on it. And the caption on the shirt says, uh, support the Afghan freedom fighter. He fights for you. You know, so they're supporting the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. Um, and just kind of going around Congress and going around the United States government and raising all this money on American soil for stuff that had been ruled a no-no. And this is, this is what this to me is what a deep state is, you know, kind of idea is all about. And they were doing it all through the seventies. So, but, you know, getting back to that Yankee cowboy, liberal internationalist, conservative internationalist kind of breakdown, which is again, nice as a sketch, the reality of it on a, a person by person day to day basis. It's a little more murky, but it's, it's a nice uh, model to work from and hey, you can Keith, can I, Keith, yeah let me, just, let me just interject and say if, if there are any listeners out there that want to understand this this dynamic within the cia joel the dutchman over at isgp he's probably done the best scholarship that there is on what he's uh calling the liberal cia and the conservative, and the conservative. cia yeah. you're absolutely right yeah he he did and, and he earlier did the liberal cia one but Last year, I think, or maybe earlier this year, he finally did the sequel where he talks about the conservative CIA. But then again, it's a lot of it's a rehash of this ASC stuff because it's the same thing in a lot in a lot of substantial respects. It was right. But um, referring again to that, you know, and then I'll close. But referring again to that. uh, That article from Will Banyan about the illusion of elite unity and how there's actually, you know, some, some difference of opinion there and some real struggles that go on with, with, uh, some of these, um, you can, you know, at the beginning of that article, there's some, there's some quotes from like, uh, Richard Nixon and Z big in the seventies and in the seventies, you know, Nixon says that the thing is the establishment, and the establishment is dying. This is what he says. Z-Big says, and I'll quote this directly. If you were a member of the Council on Foreign Relations 15 years ago, you knew damn well that the conversation was either policy or would be policy. Today, it is just interesting talk. So he says that in 1977. So you count back 15 years. And what is he talking about? It's 1962, right in the middle of Camelot, right? So... There's, it seems like that there was this shift, you know, where the conservative international group kind of starts to take the lead. And you start to get the CIA becoming the bad guy because it kind of represented that establishment. I, I mean, that's my guess, right? And by 2001, you know, you go from like a Kennedy or a Carter that would really be more deferential and like what does the un think about this you know before we make a move to george bush being like you know screw the un we, we have a coalition of the willing we're the neoconservatives and we're gonna just stomp through iraq and this un can stick it up their rear end you know kind of kind of attitude and it seems like um you know that asc network of which Wackel was a very visible face in its golden age of the 1980s. They lost a lot of battles, but man, they won the war. (laughs) 
Well, I mean, the I other significant, I mean, the other kind of significant thing about that, too, is the fact that in the Bush two years, I mean, they really finally bypassed the CIA, I mean, almost altogether with covert operations, because, I mean, really, ultimately, the covert operations were how U.S. power was projected throughout much of the Cold War. And I think the Yankee faction had kind of maintained control over this through the CIA. But then Bush right. two comes in there and basically JSOC takes over all this stuff. I mean, even in operations, theoretically, where the CIA is running JSOC is who is actually doing the stuff on the ground. But frequently, JSOC's doing this all by themselves with almost no input from the CIA at all. So, I mean, the military and I mean, they've been the military has been pissed about that for decades. And they pretty much finally wrestled away control of that from the CIA with the Bush two presidency. So that was yeah. another major coup as well. Right. And that kind of continues to today. You know, um, they they really cleaned house with the uh, State Department. Right. Which used to be the boogeyman of, of the conspiratorial right propaganda is like State Department is where the CFR and the New World Order. That's the, the nest of New World Order power over the United States sovereignty. Well, it's it's seen better days. Right or wrong. You know, it's like it's not even. Like, you know, um, Kennedy talking about this kumbaya handed all over to the blue helmet stuff. I mean, maybe I just lived in the country too long, but I ain't down with any of that. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I don't really have a, a home with any of these guys, to be honest. But but I do appreciate, uh, you know, you guys have read this this manuscript and uh, you guys are smart and it looks like y'all have really gotten a lot out of it. You're all referring back to it. It makes me feel good about just going ahead and publishing it, which I'm going to, which I'm going to do this fall. And, uh, when we do, uh, recluse, you can help me or give me some pointers cause you did it. And then oh, we'll, absolutely. we'll put it up on the farm website and people can, uh, actually, you know, hear or read for themselves. This, this thing that we keep talking about, Keith's writing on this, you know, uh, it's been referred to a lot in this whole series. So it's time to put it out there. Um, and let people see it for themselves. The bureaucratic history of the early world anti-communist league. Amen. Sure. Uh, the next Fry. step, man, you got to start coming up with that cover art too, brother. Maybe that big, that photo of the uh, the Wackle rally that kind of has that Nuremberg-y look to it, you know? Oh, yeah, that would be a yep. good one. You know yeah, what I'm yeah. talking about? Yeah, no, I know exactly the one you're talking about. We just got to check and see if that's in public domain or not. But um, yeah. we'll figure something out, though. That'll be cool. <laughs> Or maybe since it's so dry and full of footnotes, we'll just have like a nice little monograph type. There is no cover art. It's just a little title. But anyway, whatever. It's all. <laughs> it's going to um, be dry, you know, not salacious or scandalous or it will be the antidote to uh, Inside the League, which was criticized as polemical, as I, as I said, you know, this 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 won't have that uh, stigma to it. I'll put it that way. Okay. It's going to be fabulous nonetheless. Well, uh, Keith, did you have anything else to add? Nah, man. Just, we, we're, we're over three hours. Let's give your listeners a break. Okay. Well, gentlemen, <laughs> I want to thank you guys very much. It has been a fabulous podcast, uh, chock full of lots and lots of fascinating information. And in a couple of weeks, we will be back uh, with the next installment of the Wackle series. That'll be just uh, Keith and myself. We are going to finally take you guys down into the true netherworld of Wackle. We're going to tell you about the cults, the secret societies, the drug cartels, the death squads, all revolving around an interesting outfit called Los Tecos. 
Keith, are you ready for that, my friend? Uh, maybe not in two weeks. <laughs> I gotta give you this book. <laughs> I give you a couple weeks to prep for that, man. But it is gonna be freaking cool, guys. Um, so anyway, until then, everybody, uh, I want to thank you guys all for listening and continuing with this series. It's been a blast for us to make it, and hopefully, you guys out there are enjoying as much as we have been in putting it together. So with that, I'm going to sign off for now. Uh, good night and good luck to you all. <laughs>